At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All right, it's been a little bit, but glad to get started. Again, we're brought to you today by our own Patreon, patreon.com slash Duncan LaRue. We just recorded our monthly mailbag, which is out as we speak. So if you want to listen to that or get a bunch of other little goodies, support our efforts, including the NBA cast, which is ad-free at the moment. That would be fantastic as well. But let's uh, get started here. We'll start with our 15 and 60 mailbag edition and the Dallas Mavericks. Danny, their fundamentals. The Mavericks are 17 and 18 after their win on Sunday against Oklahoma City. They are 4 and 7 since the last 15 and 60. They're pretty much even in net rating plus 0.1. That's 18th. They are 15th in offense and 17th in defense. And despite all of that success, 538 projects them to win 36 games, which would put them 14th in the ridiculous Western Conference. Yeah, only 5% playoff odds, which is pretty rough. And obviously their inability to win on the road is what's been killing them. They pulled out a, a big win. Dennis Smith Jr. clutch defense against Paul George today. But despite uh, the fact that he's had a couple of big stops letting games, you know, he's missed a lot of time with that wrist injury, been back a couple games now. He had some foibles in the clutch on the road the previous game against new orleans where he took a difficult step back three going for a two for one and then failed to get off a, a tying shot much to the chagrin of one luka Doncic who had 34 points in that game but as we talked about as mark stein first reported there have been some rumblings that the mavs have at least been gauging the trade market on dennis smith jr and so the question basically which several people asked is what kind of return might they seek for him I think one of the important elements here is age because Luca is 19 years old right now. And while he is very polished, I'm, I'm going to be interested to see what his arc is like. I mean, generally players who are good when they're young, keep on improving. And if, especially if his body gets better, it'll be interesting to see where that goes. But I would be focusing more on the younger side just because Dallas's best years might be in front of them and they have such clean books. So, I, But in terms of positions and roles, you can be pretty flexible. I, I think that it would be good to get one other guy who's dynamic with the ball in his hands, but maybe doesn't have to have it there all the time. And then something else I'd be looking for is positional versatility defensively, probably. I mean, yeah, they're going to need a center at some point. You talked, we talked about some recent episode about how, or actually that might've been in the, in the, the Patreon mailbag. Yeah. It was in the mailbag about rolling centers with Doncic just because his, his skill set can work well there. But I would be focusing more in terms of a trade return on either draft picks or players that can occupy the perimeter with without needing like special reason. Like I'm not saying they should get him now, but like Robert Covington, theoretically, you know, guy who can defend multiple positions, who can hit threes, more in that vein necessarily than like a, a more ball dominant type of guy. 
Yeah, well, my response would be they shouldn't be looking to trade him to begin with, other than just maybe. Sure, that's fair. Because I'm not sure that he's like, I mean, maybe there's personality stuff behind the scenes or whatever. Maybe they just don't think he's going to be that good, you know, as someone who's been higher on Smith than many. I am not in that camp but i mean i think he's actually not a terrible fit next to Dunches as a guy who can maybe certainly not at this point in your career is the every down pick and roll option but he's shown more than other point guards i think you know who are kind of his type he's shown a pretty decent ability to hit the three especially off of spot ups uh, i think he has some defensive potential although he's a long way from realizing that he has shown the ability to play decent defense at times He's a good transition guy, so is Luca, and maybe he's not a great pick and roll guy himself, but as a guy who can be on the second side and attack, use that great quickness to get to the rim once Luca creates the initial opening in pick and roll. I think he's actually like not a bad fit. Now, maybe he's just never going to turn out. Maybe he's not going to be the guy that that we hoped, but I do think there's an overall lesson here in the New Orleans Pelicans where basically 2013 the first offseason after they had Anthony Davis and Davis he really took the enormous step forward in his second year recall I mean he was great on a per play basis I think you know Damian Lillard remember I I don't know if he was the unanimous rookie of the year but he was pretty close Uh, and AD you know he averaged like 14 a game or something his rookie year and then it was the second year that he really the jumper really came in and he started averaging 20 a game and it's like okay this guy's really gonna be you know looking like a top 10 player for a decade here you know you didn't you weren't sure of that after his rookie year he was kind of on track but you felt it was going to take him some time and then he exploded his second year but that offseason before then you recall that the Pels started making moves of trading future assets to get better immediately and and Smith is a future asset and they need some outs here they need another star to build this team with Doncic and if you're not going to get one of the absolute best guys in free agency which it doesn't appear is going to be the case well you only have a limited number of ways to do that especially with them out their draft pick in 2019 and Luca's probably going to make them too good going forward especially if they have all this cap space too and they're a competent organization I don't see them picking at the top of the lottery again for some time here now so what other outs do you have for getting that second star other than Smith now they may just say hey there's no way he's going to be that second star I haven't reached that point with him yet but I don't see what you could trade him for that's going to put you in a better position to get a second star than having him and that's exactly where I want to go with this because Dennis Smith you know second year as a player and even though this draft is not and this we haven't gone through our own analysis yet we're not at that point but I don't think many teams are going to give up let's say like a top 10 pick for Dennis Smith right now you know you have have two years while you and I both like him there's also that weird stigma of like why is this team willing to trade him you know oh, you get sure. into those sorts of circumstances yeah all, all pretty and, much all recent graphics when we talk about the new car driving off the lot but also just those guys are generally going to be more valuable to their own teams than they are to other teams unless they're just you know there's probably 25 percent of draft picks who really look like they're working out well above their slot who are worth more and then you've got guys who are kind of you know lived up to expectations being a little disappointing uh, with smith i think that's how most people see him i I haven't been that disappointed with him again uh but and And, then there's the guys who just suck and they're worthless now you know right and and so if you if you take that out so let's let's say for the sake of this discussion that the mavericks can't get a top 10 pick in the draft and let's let's use the 2019 draft but we don't have to be specific here the odds of getting that second star getting a star with picks 11 through 20 or wherever this pick is going to be are pretty low i would say the odds of the that pick in the abstract are lower than dennis smith becoming a star so if your goal is to find another player even if he's not a perfect fit or are 
are comparatively low. And I, and I, I mean, I think he is done well relative to his draft slot. And so, yeah, I think that's something worth considering here is just that the general upside of a pick in the, in the teens is not super great. And it's tough with point guards because you have to be patient with them. It's a very rare point guard who, even in his second year, is looking like a future star the way it takes the type of leap that, say, De'Aaron Fox did this year. But this is a guy who has decent shooting talent and he's an all-time level athlete as a point guard he's got to get way better at finishing you know but he has the raw ability to be sure i think he's got a decent vision so the building blocks are there you never know if he's going to put it together it takes a long time point cards but i think they need to be patient they don't like luka Doncic. this is his rookie year he's 19 they got plenty of time here um another yeah one other one other quick point sorry one other quick point i want to make is that smith has also grown as a three-point shooter this year about 32 percent to 36 we're not all the way there in sample size and something i i said before the year i wanted to see his proportion of pull up versus catch and shoot he is shooting more catch and shoot but the bigger reason that he's jumped is that he's shooting a much higher percentage on pull-ups now that could just be you know he's only taken like 40 so far this year but it could also be that because luca is there he doesn't have to force it as much and maybe that will help him improve too by just excising the worst shots that he takes yeah and he definitely did have way too high of usage last year but even just to create that many shots you know it'd be 28 percent usage or whatever he was last year on admittedly a bad offense as a rookie point guard is not bad real quick question here we got about 30 seconds left what would Dirk's role be this year and could his return hurt their playoff chances uh he started to shoot a little bit better but he's still just absolutely calcified defensively and you know, I think that bench unit when he's been out there so far, I think you know, he's going to get better. It's going to take some time for him to come back from that injury. But those are some growing pains there, and they're not going to just not play him at all. Uh, that bench unit was dominating, and I think the numbers are down pretty significantly in terms of the on-off with that bench unit since he's returned. Yeah, and we'll have to see them at full strength. You know, Wes Matthews is still unavailable, so that's screwing with things a little bit. But remember, they're, they have Kleba Powell and DeAndre Jordan already in that potential big man rotation. So it gets it gets hard to fit everybody in. And I would say that Dirk is probably the worst of those guys right now. Let's move to Denver here. Sure. So the Nuggets are 23 and 11, 6 and 2 since last time we did this. Plus 5.2 net rating is 7th. They're 8th in offense and a far more impressive to me, 8th in defense, even with Millsap missing a bunch of time. 538 projects them to win 53, which would be 3rd in the Western Conference and projects that they absolutely will make the playoffs. Yeah, and they've weathered the storm here. Millsap is back with that broken toe. Barton seems like his return is relatively imminent. Same with Harris. Those guys are starting to get in at least some light practices uh interesting question here from uh miles jameson do you think denver's injuries will help them come playoff time due to the role players getting more experience or could it hurt due to lack of continuity and evolving roles so if we assume health at the end of the season is unaffected by what's happening now i think it's actually helpful for a couple of different reasons one of them is the establishment of Juancho hernan gomez in the rotation and just definitely being a part of it and if they had had will barton he probably would have been marginalized probably the backup three you know something like that but he has really thrived Mont- Morris has had a great opportunity. My expectation right now is that he is better this year than Isaiah Thomas will be. A lot of that is just the health stuff. I mean, if Isaiah comes back and is gangbusters, that's great. But yeah, getting to see these guys in, in their roles. And also, I think this opens the door possibly for something you and I have both advocated for, which is that if Will Barton doesn't work on the starting line, he could really provide some value to them as a second unit player. Now, Morris has done better than, than I expected, bare minimum. And Barton on that line might kind of 
it might be too many cooks a little bit, but I think it just gives them more options and that could be a really good thing for the Nuggets. Yeah, and they got plenty of time here as long as they can stay healthy to get it going. I mean, I think where they really need that continuity the most is going to be Millsap and Jokic working together offensively and they just they got to find somewhere for Millsap to stand where he could be effective and not short circuit the offense when Jokic has the ball um but this is a related question from a Tuki Duki would you keep Wancho in the starting lineup when Barton and Harris return absolutely I would now Will Barton was promised he would be the starting three when he signed that big contract but I think Wancho I still think his best position is the four but he provides so much size and rebounding they need someone other than Millsap who can guard bigger players he makes them much more switchable as well and he's a better off-ball player a better shooter they have between Millsap who has to get some touches Harris Murray, who you know has been really inconsistent, but has had some monster games, including 46 on the Suns, a nine of 11 from three the other night, and so working all those guys in, having just an off-ball guy who's hitting 45 percent or whatever he's hitting from three this year, and is a better defensive player to me than Barton is great, and then you can get some more on the second unit as well. You know, now that second unit's been really good too with Murray coming in, but now when Murray goes out, you can bring Barton in, and maybe you could even have Murray and Barton together on the second unit also i think you could then try to have wancho come in more as a backup for replace lyles just take lyles out of the rotation entirely but i think with the starters i do like the fit of wancho better just because he doesn't need the ball and he's going to space the floor a little bit better than barton is going to also just because there are so many talented forwards in the league having another guy who's around that same size can be really valuable and barton just gets beasted by a lot of those players and shock of shocks they are generally in more abundance on potential playoff opponents you could talk about the lakers as being an example of this the thunder depending on how they want to handle paul george some of these other teams the warriors obviously and so i think wancho gives them a better series of looks there and and the other thing is just because a guy doesn't start and this could be you could say will or you could say this for wancho they can still play plenty of minutes like the nuggets can run their rotation where both of those guys play 28 plus minutes without too much trouble because they can structure it you know with with other guys going out and because there's some positional versatility there too yeah finding him has been huge i mean that was the biggest thing that we thought they lacked was a guy with some size who can guard on the wing and also i think he gives them some insurance now too in case paul Millsap opts or, or they decline the team option on paul Millsap, which they almost are certain to do and then he'll be a free agent if they can't come to an agreement to bring him back i think you could slide wancho in to that power forward slot he's not gonna be as good defensively as Millsap, but he spaces the floor a little bit better so and you could really have an offensive powerhouse with barton at the three and him at the four going forward so yeah i mean that's that's probably the biggest his emergence after that lost year last year i mean he's kind of right back on track to where we hoped he would be after his really promising rookie year here all right let's do a quick lightning round here we'll do 30 seconds or so you want to pick one of these remaining questions we have some good nuggets ones sure this week from Jaden from Jaden epperson are the nuggets defensive numbers sustainable my instinct here is they're they're closer than i thought they would be especially now that they've missed Millsap for a series of time but i'm a little bit concerned that they're they're still not forcing that many turnovers and the foul rate is you know around league average so they're relying a little bit more on effective field goal percentage but they're around league average there so i think they're closer now when they were like third or whatever they were then that was unsustainable to me and even when they get Millsap back i think that is unrealistic yeah and, and when he's been out there they've been pretty good defensively even last year they were much better when Millsap was out there 
And yeah, I mean, there's nothing that sticks out about their performance right now as being unsustainable, but you know, it's not that great. They're kind of in the eight to 10 range now, depending on where you're looking defensively. And we'll see what it looks like when Millsap comes back. I don't see them being in the top five, but you know, if they can be a top 10 offense and a top 10 defense, that's very good. You know, I think that's a major step forward for this team. I, I am hopeful that they won't suffer from kind of this, oh, they were first in the West. They were second in the West for so long. And then, you know, if they can't maintain that and they end up with like the fifth seed or the sixth seed or something this year, that it'll be viewed as a disappointment. I mean, that's still a major step forward for this franchise. And they have a very, very young core. I mean, you get Harris, Jokic, Wancho, Monte Morris, Murray. I mean, all those guys are 24 or under. So they've got a lot of time here to continue to build with this group so I, I don't think they should look at it as a disappointment if you know they don't end up with the two seed or something like that you know there's going to be a lot of competition coming up behind them um, but yeah there's nothing in their statistical line that makes you think uh, that they won't look that good and, and hopefully Paul Millsap is not going to miss a third of the games going forward here now I think Barton is going to hurt their defense especially if they start him you know he is a big downgrade to me on Wancho and just having less size less rebounding um playoff matchup that would be best for denver assuming golden state aren't on their side of the bracket i think i don't like houston against them at all i don't like portland that much although they do kind of attack more now with the big and pick and roll so we've seen portland kind of struggle to deal with that strategy against the clippers a couple years ago and then obviously most famously with the pels last year so eh, maybe they'll be okay against portland they don't have enough guys to hurt them um i think okc they are a pretty good matchup against like the matchup with Jokic against OKC the last couple of years you know has been pretty good um you know taking Stevens Adams away from the basket is something that works pretty well for me and I don't think that OKC has the pick and roll ability and the shooting to really hurt them as they try to scramble around a little bit and they're a good rebounding team and OKC is really good on the offensive glass so they can neutralize that string so I like their matchup against OKC some any others that stick out to you Danny I'm trying to remember how they fared against the Jazz over over the last couple of years because I, I think Utah's offense just not having as many dynamic one-on-one creators yeah. could be interesting but all, like but but again having Gobert you know if unless Jokic can pull him away from the basket it's gonna be interesting I mean in terms of where they would put Gobert in that kind of matchup maybe you'd even want to put Gobert on Millsap just to kind of change things up a little bit uh Calvin Fong will they realistically challenge the Warriors in the playoffs uh probably not if Golden State's really humming on all cylinders but we'll see I mean it's uh I'm very curious to see that matchup if it does happen I hope it does happen um let's move on to those Warriors now at 24 and 13 six and four in their last 10 plus 5.6 net rating is sixth in the NBA they are first in offense 113.8 despite all the time that Steph Curry has missed and 13th in defense uh, 108.3 they project for 57 wins which would be first in the conference and uh, they will make the playoffs where do you want to start here We'll start here with a question uh, Ethan Sherwood-Strauss and I talked about a fair amount on Real Gym Radio, which came out recently, which is, uh, so I'm interested in your answer more than my own. How concerned are you about Draymond Green? As an offensive player, I have a, a reasonably high concern level. I think if you're just looking at him in a vacuum, not only is the three-point shooting, I mean, I think I actually tracked his three-point shooting before the game uh, up in Portland. I was there last night just to kind of get a sense of like, all right, is it in, in his head here that there's a problem or is he just like not that good of a shooter just even uh, with in non-game situations? And he, he, it's something I'll probably continue to do a little bit, but he was 19 out of 33, which is pretty bad for a guy who shoots three-pointers regularly, just, you know, shooting shots in a warm-up type of setting and 
you could take a discount on that to what it is in the game. Drew Hanlon says that you hit about half the percentage that you hit in a warm-up setting in the game, which would not be very good uh, for him. Uh, but uh, again, that's a, and I think every year of his career, other than that 2015-16 year, he's been you know in the low 30s, even like high 20s at times. So I think that's something where I think he does need to shoot the ball without hesitation at times. There are some half-court possessions where that's still going to be a good shot for them if it's at the end of the clock or you know you're comparing it to what else you might get in the half court if you're with eight on the shot clock you don't have anything else working maybe that's a good shot that he has to take without hesitation my bigger concern is just how miserable he's been from two-point range people are talking about oh he's got to dribble in for this floater and you pointed this out he's a terrible floater shooter right it's a career like 27 percent or something uh from floater range and then finishing around the rim not only is he bad but he's passing up a lot of shots i mean what really stuck out to me in that game the other day was Kevon looting hitting a three but was more remarkable about that was Draymond Green had a layup and decided instead he was going to throw it to Kevon Looney at the top of the key for a three instead of shooting a layup and when he does try to go up for a layup he's rushing it he's not getting off the ground he can't really dunk very well anymore you know he used to actually be able to get up for some dunks and when you talk about the play that's so bedeviled the rest of the NBA which is the pick and roll with him and Steph well now if they want to blitz Steph and throw it to Draymond for the four on three if Draymond can't actually get to the basket and be a threat to finish then it's kind of just more like a three on three so uh I think his two-point shooting is what I'm most worried about and defensively I think he's pretty close to where he's been their numbers with him on the floor defensively are really good this year still but yeah the offense is a big concern um maybe more for him individually they can find ways to get past it maybe with him using him more as a screener and you know running a bunch of different stuff having fewer non-shooters on the floor with him can help but yeah it's definitely a concern for me and i think that his struggles with i mean steph and kd are having the seasons they're supposed to be having obviously clay has, has been another issue well yeah and something else with draymond to mention quickly his free throw attempt rate has dropped off a cliff this year he was at around you know 28 percent of his shooting possessions over you know over over his low years he's at 16 percent right now this year and what's really ramped up not that these are the same thing but his floaters have gone up and he is still terrible at those he's 26 percent this year 27 for his career and defensively yeah i think he's been I thought he did really well in that Portland game, but we'll see how these teams can attack it. And I think that gets into a question that I wanted to do from Petty Rocket, which is who is the Warriors' worst potential matchup? So I would say who who gives them the most trouble? I do think that if Houston can get some reinforcements, it might still be them more on the defensive end, actually. Um, and then probably the Raptors and Boston. See, I, I, dis- I disagree yeah. with that. I, I think for me, it's between Milwaukee and Toronto. I probably have, you know, even though Milwaukee has given the Warriors some really impressive trouble historically, and they've done a great job i would probably say toronto just because i trust their i don't know if it's i trust their personnel or i trust just it it just feels a little bit more sustainable because they've done it more the bucks probably have a higher ceiling but also Kawhi is just such a big difference maker in that because you can throw him on Steph, you can throw him on KD, and they also have a, have Fred Van Vliet who mitigates some of what you know. He's a, he's not as good as Eric Bledsoe to me on Steph, but he did a wonderful job in their win at Oracle, where like the Bucks, they waxed the Warriors there. Not putting Boston in that category? No, not for me. I mean, I think, and this is part of the reason why with Houston, though Houston's offense is way better, is that to beat the Warriors, you have to be able to to slow them down if not stop them. I mean, as best you can. And then I think you also have to be able to score reliably. To me, Boston, other than, I mean, Kyrie is ridiculous. And, and he, like, if they played in a series, he would be the key to a couple of games. But I just don't, uh, to me, I just don't trust their overall offense enough. And especially if you're not conceding many open shots, the Warriors usually do a pretty 
pretty good job there. I think that that would make life, they'd try to make life harder to make some of their other guys like Jalen create. And they certainly can at moments. I'm not saying that, but, but to me, they would be with the Rockets in that tier where they absolutely could beat them, but I wouldn't have them as scary as the other two I talked about. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, Houston needs some more reinforcements for sure, and they got to get Paul back. But just seeing how well they played them last year and in their one matchup this year, granted, Steph was out, but, and there was a very weird time for the Warriors, but they, uh, they made the Warriors offense again look really bad and they were built to play against this Warriors team um but yeah I mean I would say I'm not as concerned about Milwaukee I don't think um I, I think that Milwaukee is just a, I don't trust Bud as much as a playoff coach and I think that while they have a formula that has worked really really well in the regular season I think that that can be exploited by smart teams that are good shooters the Bucks give up a ton of threes and uh the Warriors have three of the greatest three-point shooters ever so I, I'm not as concerned there I mean Giannis caused is some problems but you know i think they when they really focused on building a wall around Giannis, they were able to stop the bucks grab the buck shot really poorly from three in that game but and that was without draymond as well um let's do uh some quick hitters here how big a factor is the jacob evans whiff and a somewhat deteriorated warriors performance at this point in the season not that big because first round draft picks generally don't contribute to championship level teams i think it will matter more in future years you could say that the damian jones whiff and what has now become the patrick mccall whiff after uh his offer sheet with cleveland was not matched that's something we could probably talk a little little bit more about in a future show but no i don't think it's really affected them that much this year you know anybody who was drafted there wasn't going to contribute this year but that's what the problem was right they went after someone who was supposed to contribute this year and he didn't so you might as well have got someone who might contribute in the future it doesn't look like evans he's old enough that he's probably never going to contribute what else we got is jarepko a plus for the warriors or does his defense make him a bad fit he is a plus for the warriors in the regular season I think defensively he's going to be attacked against any real competent high-end offensive players that, that he'll be a, a big problem there. But depending on how Iguodala looks and how DeMarcus Cousins looks, they might not need much from him if he plays 10 to ten to 15 minutes a game more as a stopgap type of guy in the playoffs. That's all they'll really need. Should the Warriors look to acquire J.R. Smith or Robin Lopez? Asked Kirk Walker. They apparently have this fetish for Robin Lopez. Slater mentioned it the other day when he was talking about the roster and the, and the McCaw thing. I don't see Lopez helping them, especially once Cousins comes back. It, Draymond's going to play some center you're gonna need some oh can i bring yeah yeah, like when i wrote a macaw piece people like oh the warriors need center depth no they don't (laughs) you know they're gonna play draymond a lot at center they have demarcus cousins kavon looney and jordan bell what they need is perimeter depth because they have basically no injury resilience there and anybody who could shoot would help yeah, I mean, I still am very skeptical of whether McKinney and Jarebko can hold up defensively in the playoffs. And then J.R. Smith, very little evidence that he's good anymore. I mean, yeah, sure, the J.R. Smith who beat them in the playoffs a couple of years ago, yeah, that guy could help them, but I think he's just not any good anymore. Um, will the Warriors reach 60 wins? I don't believe so. Uh, they're 24 and 13 right now, so what would they have to play? What kind of pace would they have to play at the rest of the way? 36 and 7, pretty close to that, right? To get to, or, or 36 and 9. Yeah, to get to 60 and 22, doesn't seem like they got that uh, in their bag right now. So I, no, I don't see them reaching 61. Yeah, and I don't think they're going to have to push that hard to get the number one seed in the West. Now, somebody like OKC or Denver could push them pretty hard, but that would be a lot. I guess maybe we should just do the details on, on the McCaw offer sheet. Uh, I guess we have 28 minutes before they officially are going to not match, but the reporting is that they will not. What were <laughs> the specific parameters of that offer sheet from the Cavaliers? So it sounds like it was either a straight $3 million a year or close to it for 
two two years. Each year is non-guaranteed, but the league-wide guarantee date, it's technically January 10th, but that means a guy has to be waived. The decision date is January 7th. So McCaw would fully guarantee for this season a week from now and then would have a non-guaranteed year. We don't know the guarantee date for the second year, but it's probably towards the end of the year, the end of the, you know, towards January. And that $3 million would have come at a cost of $14 million to the Warriors because there'd be an $11 million, I think $11.4 million luxury tax hit on top of that. And that doesn't even include if they ended up getting anybody else, which could ratchet it up. And so, I mean, this is a deal that I think works out pretty well for McCaw and the Cleveland Cavaliers. The Cavs don't really have much of an opportunity cost here. They still have wiggle room underneath the luxury tax. They had a roster spot. They also don't have a particularly good team. So they can try him out if he's good. Then they have him for $3 million next year. If he's not good, then they can trade him or just let him go, whatever, whatever they want to do there. And yeah, I mean solid worthwhile to take a flyer on him but and and i know there was this idea and i wrote about it that the warriors could theoretically bring mccaw in for a one week trial period and then cut him if it didn't work out and they you know that's kind of it's kind of too cute by half it would have been an interesting idea just to kind of disincentivize it but if they cut him then cleveland could have just signed him again yeah. so it's like really what are you proving at that it, point he would have been disincentivize future uh offer sheets yes essentially hold yeah. out hold out all that kind of stuff yeah yeah and then if mccall was crazy enough to like not show up for his physical then things would have gotten sticky for him in a kind of demo style way well and also there's just the thought that he this is not what they need him coming into the the locker room right now uh, slater had some reporting in, in his piece that it definitely uh would be weird you know, there's uh, some warriors who are like hey what is this guy doing like he and mccaw clearly didn't want to be there as well so i mean i think discretion is a better part of valor here and not matching and i like the offer sheet from the caps three billions a little rich uh, but you know, I think they wanted to go high enough. I mean, the three million that they're going to spend this year isn't going to matter. They they're got like nine hundred thousand in breathing room under the tax if he does get yeah, guaranteed. It, and it's out it's out of their mid level, right. so it's not like they're they're burning anything particularly significant here if if they want to. And they could do trades and other stuff anyway. Yeah, and and so for next year, if he doesn't work out, then you can move on from him. Um, and I think you know he showed enough talent in that rookie year, and then he had an injury marred second year that also resulted. in and him not being able to shoot at all and he does seem to have some delusions of grandeur in terms of being a playmaker and growing a little bit more but they need someone who could defend it on the wing on this team so he's going to get chances here uh, you would imagine unless he just comes in totally out of shape and gets cut within a week uh which i, I don't think the Cavs would have much reason to do that and so this was a, a good calculated offer sheet to be enough to where there was no chance the warriors were going to match due to the physical pain uh, or, or the fiscal pain i meant to say so, all right, that's probably enough on that. So we'll see what McCall looks like uh, as a Cleveland Cavalier. Let's turn to the Houston Rockets. Actually, a dearth of questions about the Rockets this week, but always plenty to talk about with them. Yeah, always plenty to talk about. The Rockets are 20 and 15, 9 and 1 since the last time we covered them. Plus 0.9 net rating puts them 14th in the league, 5th in offense, still 24th in defense. 538 projects them to win 51 games, which would be 4th in the West, gives them a 97% chance of making the playoffs. And this isn't a question that we got asked, but it's a, 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 from Jonathan Fagan that I, I think this covers all, until until the last game. No, I, so think, I think since Chris a few Paul, more than that. I can't remember the last game. That, a few more since that then. Up. But I mean, Harden, basically some of the crazy stats, I think he's been over 35 points, like nine games in a row now. And I think he, he set a record for most consecutive games with 35 points and five assists um which you know there's a little bit of just arbitrary benchmarks there uh with we'll pick five because five is uh half of ten but it, nonetheless I, I mean he's just been unbelievable and d'antoni 
had a, some quotes I thought were interesting saying, hey, James actually, when he wasn't playing as well early in the year, he said, hey, I got to get into better shape. He's been spending more time in the weight room. He got himself into better shape, but, and you know he's been able to close games uh, with aplomb lately. And so I, I mean, you would be hard-pressed, certainly looking at his statistical line, to argue that he has been worse this year than he was a year ago with far less talent around him uh, this season. So I'll, I'll do the stats counting the Miami game because Chris Paul got hurt pretty early on in that one. So it's five games. James Harden is averaging 40 points, 8.2 assists, 5.4 rebounds. Amazingly, though, it's on 39% shooting and for, from the field and 40% shooting from three, but of course helped by getting to the line 13 times a game and making 88% of those. Yeah, and I think he's also nearing a record stuff set by Steph Curry for, I can't remember if it's four or five, but most games in a row with like five three-pointers or something like that, or maybe it's four, I can't remember. But uh, yeah, so it really has been the step-back three-pointer that has been driving a lot of this and that's an indefensible shot at this point and, and so he has he'll have periods where he'll hit that a lot and then other times you know like in the playoffs last year where it doesn't look as good for him uh, but especially considering that they aren't operating with as much spacing this year that there are fewer threats to get into the basket isn't as easy more teams are, are switching him to you see even fewer teams playing conventional pick and roll defense so that's a shot that's available and if he's hitting that he's completely unguardable I just looked it up because I'd forgotten where he was. Harden is currently 15th all-time in made threes, and he's going to pass Kobe and Chauncey Billups for 13th in the next couple weeks. It's amazing. Yeah, I mean, he's... But let's get to the questions. From Corbin Ford Watson, are Chris Paul's struggles injury-related or just age regression? I think it's a mix of the two. In Paul has... He just, even before, I mean, maybe he's just been dealing with dealing with some of this stuff because, you know, obviously he, he missed the end of the Western Conference Finals with a hamstring issue. Maybe he was pushing it a little bit hard. But this is the first year where I thought Chris Paul actually kind of looks old. Yeah, I think so. And first there was the knee, then there was the hamstring. Now it's the hamstring again. And I, I thought I was shocked that he was able to be as good of an ISO player as he was last year because that has never really quite been his game. The three-point shooting is way down to him. I mean, that's really what has been driving a lot of this, that he cut out a lot of the mid-rangers and was shooting 40% from three. So maybe he can get back to that. Maybe the three-point shooting can improve, and then that can set up his drive game a little bit more but i think teams switching more it, it's difficult over the course of a regular season for a guy his age and his size to just have to create offense one-on-one -on -one over and over again every single possession for an entire season like you're gonna wear down and it takes a lot of really hard explosive movements right if you think about the way he played with the clippers when he was playing in pick and roll and just kind of operating you can do that and get to your spots because you're getting the screen and think of like the way Steve Nash used to play, for example, where you don't have to do those max efforts that are going to stress out your hamstrings where you really have to just beat your guy one-on-one, -on -one, beat him hard to the spot slow down immediately pull up get your shot off over a larger player the pick and roll is more about using your brain changing speeds all the stuff that he's great at and so the more switching he has to go against as he gets older the more difficult it can become for him so the hope is that he can finally get healthy here you know maybe he can kind of get on the Andre Iguodala plan. I mean, we saw this from him way back in 2010-11 when he was coming off that initial knee surgery that he had where he had the brace on all year and then he went wild in the playoffs when he was finally able to 
kind of let loose and so the hope is that maybe he can get there but yeah i think the evidence appears to be that he has reached a, a i shouldn't say reach but he's fallen to a different level in the regular season at least and so i think that's that's gonna be my expectation going forward is that he's gonna kind of be more of you know a second banana type of player um until he proves otherwise are you ready to move on to the Clippers, or do you want to? Let's do that that other question real quick too. I mean, we could, we could at least get sure. to from uh, C. Lee. Yeah. Is Daniel House solid enough as the starting three, even when Ennis returns, or should Houston still look for an upgrade? And I think they should look for an upgrade, or at least just more bodies uh, in that position as well. Ennis has struggled with the hamstring issue, um, but you know, House. I mean, they've been good since he's been out there. He's provided competent plays, look confident shooting the ball, but he doesn't have much of a history as a shooter and ultimately this year he's shooting 32 percent from downtown on 3.6 attempts a game and he's he provides some athleticism i think he's been solid defensively you know he's not a guy who you're just gonna attack left and right so he's been helpful but you don't want to count on a guy like him as like oh yeah we found our starting three here this guy we got out of the g league i mean remember when gary clark was gonna be that guy and now he's out of the rotation because he couldn't hit shots anymore uh, i still think they should be giving him some looks uh, now and then d'antoni is not known for kind of bringing guys in but you know gary clark's shooting 31 percent from the field right so and house doesn't have any kind of a, a history i mean he couldn't even make the warriors this year out of camp and they had a need for a guy at his position as well mckinney ended up beating him out so no i would not count on him giving you starter level of play in the playoffs just yet yeah and it's good to have options and this is of course another option but more bodies would definitely help and they might end up being available but forwards are always hard to find in season all right what do we got next here Next up is the Los Angeles Clippers. They are, sorry, the LA Clippers. I oh, dealt with baby. that whole friggin' thing yesterday. They are 21 and 15, 5 and 6 since the last 15 and 60, 13th in net rating at plus 0.9, 6th in offense, 23rd in defense. 538 projects them to win 43 games, which would put them in a, actually by themselves, an 8. There, there's a, a collection at 44, but they're outside of that. And 538 gives them a 51% chance of making the playoffs because of how many teams are in the mix in the West. And I think we can start with a question from BPM Twitter. Why are people not talking about the strong season Daniel Gallinari is having this year? Is he a part of their future, even with their pursuit of Kawhi, Kevin Durant, Tobias Harris, ETC? Yeah, I mean, Gallo just quickly, 63% true shooting, taking 40% of his shots from downtown, getting to the foul line. Again, it's just the, the ridiculous rate that he has a, a capability for. Never turns it over. 23% usage. I mean, that is a very valuable offensive player at age 30. You do wonder, of course, uh, if things could come crashing down for him from a health perspective at any time, but he has looked extremely spry this year after he had all those issues with the glute, and, and I can't even remember what the hell other injuries he had last year. It was mostly the glute, as, as I recall. Uh, so, to be a part of their future, yeah, I think Kawhi and Tobias Harris, if those are the two guys they end up bringing in with their cat size, maybe he doesn't fit that well with that, but he's a quality player he's been well worth that contract this year so i see no reason to trade him you know unless there's really just some great value out there you know to have three guys who can play at the forward positions who are that good offensively i i think is pretty useful so for the time being i don't see any reason to move on from him we were talking about him as a potential stretch candidate or potential they just try to move him and get off of that money at 21 million or so that he's owed but yeah that's it doesn't look like it's gonna be necessary he's a value on the contract and unless someone is just beating down their door to trade for him and get maybe a little bit better of a fit i would see no reason to move on from him at this point 
I would agree with you. And it's also interesting because Gallinari and Tobias Harris have almost identical cap figures for next season. Gallows is an actual salary and Tobias Harris is a cap hold. And so some of that will be determined by what need they have for a specific amount of space, who says yes, all that kind of stuff. And another part is going to be, you know, what kind of decision Tobias Harris makes. And so they have a lot there. So I think he's a part of their future in most circumstances. And incidentally, he probably isn't in their best case scenarios because that's just the way it works. You know, if your cap space becomes more valuable, then maybe you move on. But Gallinari has had a really nice year. And also because he's a little bit older, I don't think that's as big a deal. You know, I think it's Tobias is 26, Gallo is 30. That distinction does matter, but I think it matters a lot more because the older player is also the one with the far more extensive injury history. And so you're just kind of sitting there going, is this not fool's gold? Because Gallinari is one hell of a player when he's healthy. It's just, is he going to be healthy this proportion of the season? And something else, I mean, he's having the most efficient year of his career from a couple of different standpoints, leading rebound rate and all that but he's also shooting 46 percent from three and 46 percent is rosy for somebody who in a full season hasn't shot over 39 percent since like his rookie year so he's you know he's a very good shooter but not 46 percent good because pretty much nobody is 46 percent good yeah no i mean you would expect if i had to pick what is his true shooting to be for the rest of the year i'd probably say it'd be you know 58 59 percent so that was still very good numbers obviously and i like him just as a fit yeah he's it could be a little statuesque defensively at this point in his career but offensively as a guy who can shoot and then attack mismatches in the post attack off the drive get to the foul I mean he doesn't take anything off the table for other players when he doesn't have the ball and then he can uh, attack mismatches but he's you know he's not going to take bad shots either um a related question what is making Gallo and Tobias so effective out there together they're a, a very unique forward tandem right both guys with a little more size than normal so they've got the ability to kind of roast their matchups i mean gallo effectively has been a little bit more of the power forward but both of those guys one of them are going to have a size advantage at all times and they're both shooting the ball extremely well I mean, like they are probably they might be the best shooting i mean now both those guys maybe are a little above their head but we've been saying that about harris for a couple of years now and he's been in the high 30s low 40s from three the last couple of years you'd be hard pressed to find a better shooting three and four so that get leads a ton of space Space for guys like Harold who to unlock his drive game, Lou Williams to get to the basket, the pick and roll. Shea, I think, has really benefited in the starting lineup as well. He's got kind of more of a ground-bound old man game, but he's able to get to the rim and take advantage of the spacing. So I think just having two guys who are both real good shooters and can space the floor for each other, and then also one of those two guys is going to have a size advantage pretty much every night as well. And they can both run pick and roll. And they're just the, the level of versatility, they're always going to find some kind of a way to help the scoring whether it's spacing the floor for each other or the other players or whether it's in pick and roll if you're not going to switch them or whether it's going to their individual offense in the post there's a a lot of things uh, that those guys can do so it's difficult to find two guys on the other team who can match up with them at the forward position and at a basic level, one of the important things that Gallo and Tobias do is that they're both really capable with the ball in their hands more so than most forwards, but they also can do really well off ball because they are capable shooters. They've, they've done a really good job there. So they're not as one note. And I think that really does help the Clippers and the creation that those two guys can provide makes life easier on their guards. Their guards can create, but they, I think they can function in different ways as well. We can move on to the question from Anthony. What is the best outcome for the Clippers offseason given all their cap space? Presumably that would involve Kawhi Leonard and Kevin Durant because those two guys are awesome. You know, those are two MVP candidates who also both play a position of intense value. I think their games would fit together really, really well. I actually laid out, it's, it's coming out in a piece for the athletic 
this upcoming week. I don't know what day, but it feeds off a piece that Jovan Buha wrote about kind of what they're looking at. And I've laid out this hypothetical about how they actually, if they preferred Tobias Harris to Gallinari, not I, I wrote it under these, like if they did, they could actually theoretically structure a deal. It would require the other team playing ball, but I think they would to structure either the Durant or the Kawhi Leonard signing as a sign in trade with them getting Gallinari. And the reason why they would do that is because Gallinari is a better player than either the Raptors or the Warriors could get in free agency. And so it was, you know, I'm not saying it's going to happen or anything like that, but something like that would probably be in their best case. If they could keep those two, add two MVP candidates, keep Tobias Harris just because he's a little bit younger and I think it could fit better with them as, you know, on a team that needs stability. And that's one hell of a foundation. Yeah, you could even involve Harris in a double sign and trade, presuming that he wanted to go there that would be obviously more difficult mechanically okay we're out of time on the clippers that that's a good thought though the potential sign and trade and to be clear if they keep gallo they're looking at only about 53 million dollars in space and with kd his right. his max kd would be 38 million and Kawhi's would be 33 so you need 71 million in space so you would have to move off of gallo in some form or fashion if they could send him out and not take back anything that could get him to 74 million approximately and enable them to sign both players that seems unlikely given the fact that Kawhi is reportedly upset with durant about the comments that durant made about him being a system player in san antonio years ago maybe they would get over that but that would uh i don't see them teaming up but that obviously is the dream scenario to be sure here let's move to the lakers 20 and 16 struggled obviously lebron has been out uh, are they gonna win against sacramento what's going on in that game as we're as we're recording they here? just won oh, it, yeah. it, it, as we as we're recording 121 114 they won kcp 26 points josh hart 22 points both those guys plus you know plus teens yeah. 18 and 19 ingram had himself a nice game too with 21 points uh, on 9 of 13 also worth noting for the Lakers, uh, Rajon Rondo is going to miss another month now. I mean, this guy, he's got to have had more hand injuries than like anyone in NBA history. I mean, he's like, there's that one that cost him uh, his series against the Celtics for the Bulls. He's had two already this year. I, I think he's had another one at some point as well. So he's going to miss time. Lonzo obviously is uh, going to get the, the ball here without LeBron, though. They need something at backup point guard. Maybe that's Ingram. I'd be interested to see what the rotations looked like uh, looking at it. Uh, Sweet McElliott, unfortunately, did played nine minutes but scored 47 fewer points than he did last night for the South Bay Lakers. <laughs> um, but we'll check in on the rest of their fundamentals. I mentioned four and six in their last 10. Plus 2.5 net rating is 10th in the NBA, 17th ranked offense, 10th ranked defense and they project for 44 wins which will put them in a tie for sixth in the conference they are given 59 percent chance of making the playoffs per 538 first question here danny if you want to start with this one are there ways the lakers can involve lonzo more in the offense despite his limitation yeah i think they could do a little bit more with him as a cutter and screener especially an off ball star i love using point guards there and lonzo as a smart player a smart point guard can do a lot there and point guards just basically never get called for illegal screens so i think there is a little bit more that they could do there and he's also bigger than a lot of point guards so yeah i I think there there is some they can do something i looked it up lonzo for the season is actually shooting an almost identical 31 percent on catch and shoot threes and pull-ups thankfully he's shooting more catch and shoot you'd expect those numbers to be you know 
balanced in favor of catch and shoot just because they're generally easier shots. But, you know, they, the, they don't need as much from him on ball when LeBron is there, you know, can key the offense in transition, everything else like that. But yeah, I think it's more kind of that smaller stuff, screeners, cutting, all that kind of stuff that could do a little bit, but not a ton. Yeah, they'd be hard pressed, I think, to get him more involved. I mean, you could say, how are they going to do that? They, you're going to bring him off screens Well, he doesn't really hit enough threes to be worth it, right? That's been kind of one of the disappointments. You thought that maybe you could come off screens and shoot and that, that would be a way that his lack of a traditional pick and roll game could be alleviated. And yeah, I mean, he's added a little bit more in the mid range, but especially if he's playing with LeBron and Ingram on the starting unit, you know, those guys are, are better at that than he is. You're not getting a ton of spacing either with ingram out there is not looking to take the three-pointer as much so yeah i'm not sure i mean the other thing you might say is rather than all these guys looking to grab and go they could just look to outlet it to lonzo more but i mean these are they got a lot of really good grab and go guys on this team too uh so yeah i mean i'm not sure you know you could throw uh, every once in a while set him a back screen to go for an alley-oop or something but i mean this is like very marginal stuff here he just doesn't have the skill set to be more involved especially on a team that has uh, some superior creators to him interesting question for from pay dog which laker benefits in brackets long term the most from lebron being sidelined for a few games for me the answer is brandon ingram because i think brandon ingram meshes the worst with lebron of any of their key players and he, to me ingram has looked the most lost at sea this year and you know he's had a weird year but had some had some injury stuff also had that suspension from the houston play and because he's still not super comfortable taking threes and because ingram is better with the ball in his hands than without it i just don't think he's the best fit with lebron so you get that starting five that they had tonight of Lonzo, Josh Hart, Ingram, Kuzma, and JaVale, I think that speaks much more to what Ingram does well than a lineup with LeBron out there. Ingram, pretty much identical numbers to last year. <clears throat> shooting a few fewer threes, shooting a worse percentage. You remember he was like 39% last year, but it was such a low volume that we didn't make much of that number. <clears throat> but the biggest difference in his performance has been his assist rate is just about halved and he had nine assists tonight right i mean that was one of the bigger areas of growth in his game last year when people felt like he had taken a significant step forward and he hasn't had a chance to show that this year and so the hope to me would be that they finally will start staggering them a little bit more and they've done that sporadically but generally i think ingram has played the vast majority of his minutes with lebron and i think they should be staggering those guys as much as possible not only just to make the team better but just to let ingram show some growth and just help his statistics look better and up his trade value i mean i think even that you know is important for what they're trying to do here going forward so yeah i'm in total agreement with you ingram would be the one uh you know kuzma is going to get some more shots to be sure maybe lonzo would uh i think josh hart actually might be an underrated one he and if you remember his summer league performance he showed more shooting the three off the dribble he's been a wonderful finisher this year but he's largely been relegated to just being a guy who attacks it in transition and shoots some threes so he'll get a little bit more of a chance and he had a big game today also Last question we had was from Sean Leonard. Does the Lakers center rotation change when McGee comes back with Zubac playing so well? The answer was always going to be yes, and it is yes. I mean, JaVale McGee is a, I think he's a superior option. Zubac showed more than I anticipated, but just JaVale's ability to affect teams defensively and offensively, a really good fit. Granted, LeBron isn't available yet, but he's, because he, he's a dependent offensive player entirely, and those players can be good when you have elite guys passing them the ball, as the Lakers often do. So Zubac can fit into the rotation for sure, but JaVale to me is still their best option. JaVale provides more in transition, running the floor, better natural shot 
shot blocker, although Zubac was very good at, in those areas. Kind of weird to say because they seem like different players, but they actually play a pretty similar game. And maybe if JaVale turns back into a pumpkin or he's not quite himself uh, after this pneumonia scare, you might see going to Zubac a, a little bit more. I think you also just, if they're comfortable using Zubac now, there'll be days when maybe Tyson Chandler just isn't giving them enough offensively that you might want to turn to Zubac. Chandler is pretty miserable uh, offensively at this point in time. And or maybe just to get Tyson some time off. You know, I mean, they basically were 20 minutes a game for the 36-year-old Chandler is a little bit much for him, especially at this point in time. So if you wanted to give Zubach six minutes and now play Chandler 14 instead of 20 and see how that goes, you know, that might be another thing that, that you could do as well. So I think like the fact that he's proven that he could survive and be effective is important and it might allow him to give those guys a little more rest. But I think the, those two guys are still going to be the clear options ahead of him unless uh, one of them falls. Let's move on to the Memphis Grizzlies. The Grizzlies are 18 and 17, 3 and 7 since last time we hit them. Dead even net rating puts them 20th in the league. It's kind of amazing how that happened because the bottom of the league is so bad and the top of the, it's more balanced. 27th in offense, 6th in defense. 538 projects them to win 41 games, which put them in a tie for 10th and gives them a 36% chance of making the playoffs. And so where I want to start with this is a question from Justin Maple. Should the Grizzlies buy, sell, or hold at the trade deadline? Oh, that's an interesting question. Buying? Well, yeah. I, I can answer part sure. of it. What the hell is buying for them? I mean, they don't have their own first round pick in all likelihood this year. They don't really have a ton of young like assets. I so I, I does it to me. It seems unrealistic that they could really be a full on buyer. Oops, sorry, that was the timer from the last <laughs> one. Uh, yeah, I mean, being out that pick seems like a, one of the major problems. Um, and. To be a buyer, to chase the eighth seed, that never really seems to work out that well. Now, maybe what buying includes is a first-round pick plus Chandler Parsons to get someone who can play. But this isn't a team that has a lot of holes either. You know, I mean, maybe you could say backup center still if Noah isn't able to be effective and Jaron Jackson isn't quite there yet. But you don't use a future first-round pick to get a backup center. Maybe you would use a future second. You know, you could see something along those lines in terms of fortifying. They could use one more shooter. I've mentioned former Grizzly Wayne Allington as a possibility for them. But, you know, beyond the second round pick for a guy, I wouldn't want to see them buying, selling. They don't have much to sell either necessarily. If they do just have a miserable month or Collier's Gasol gets hurt, then yeah, I think you could talk about doing something like that. But I think hold is is probably it, as uh, unsexy as that may be. And maybe they work around the margin. Now, they are out of second as well. That They already traded to get Garrett Temple and get off of the Macklemore contract. I can't remember if that's their own second or not off the top of my head here. But So they may not want to go too deep into that, especially because they are probably going to have a retrenchment coming and their future second round picks would be valuable maybe they could trade a protected second but then you know, how much can you get for that so i wouldn't expect anything major i think if noah works out they'll probably stand pat if they if he doesn't then maybe they'll want to try to get one more option in there um you know i guess the other thing you might say they could look at is you know a jeremy lynn type of backup point guard a guy who could play some 
with Mike Conley, give them a little more creation since, uh, you know, obviously since time immemorial, they've struggled offensively. You said they're 27th. Um, so that's maybe the other type of guy, just one more guy who can actually like confidently run a pick and roll and put some pressure on the rim for this team. That's that something else that they could use. Is there a third Brooks they can get? <laughs> I don't think, I, I don't know that there is. I but mean, yeah, well, I, let, I, let I me, think holding makes... think about this. Like, what about like, you know, a first going along with Parsons to the Hawks for uh, Baysmore and Lynn protected obviously uh to hell and high water but you know that that might be something you could think about just to get off of parsons and you know parsons has not been but shut I, down i think depending on depending on how that's protected i mean i think that you know the hawks i do that in a heartbeat just because there isn't much immediate value well, for them maybe you can just and- bamboozle another team you know, get lottery protection for a couple of years you know kind of like similar to the and then they, yeah. the other team treats it as a real first round pick yeah and then it just turns out like no actually we know we're not going to be good in 2021 or 2022 and so you know mm-hmm. these two years when the pick is lottery protected um go ahead you know if we're in the playoffs then like things have worked out pretty well for us we're okay giving up that pick um so yeah i think a lot of it just depends on what another team would do i think the hawks would if you're going to take on chandler parsons you're probably going to want to do a little bit better than that yeah especially Especially when you're giving up, you're not even just taking on a salary. Yeah, you're you're giving up player a player with Bazemore who has some money for next year, but those guys are way more capable of contributing. So you're kind of taking two hits in one, even if one hit doesn't matter for them. Interesting question from Matt Erlicka. Should Marcus opt out of his about $25 million player option? And as a point of reference here, this season, 1819, is Marcus age 34 season. So for me, the, the calculus that you're trying to do here, if the goal is financial, and obviously if the goal is not financial, then things, then I would probably opt out just because if he wants to be somewhere else, you might as well go there now. And this offseason, there is a ton of available money so he can have greater control over where he goes. So if that, if that's a factor, then yes. And financially, it, it's unlikely that he gets 25 million for next season, but you're not really comparing that. You're comparing that to what would he get as an unrestricted free agent after his age 35 season. And he's having a good year. I think some of it depends on how the season turns out for Memphis, but I would seriously consider it. I mean, this is where agents make their money. You know, like, can he get 15 million a year for three years? You know, something in the 345 range with a team that he's happy to play with, whether that's Memphis or somebody else. If you're in that range, I would seriously consider it. So the unrestricted free agent center market is an interesting one. For pure centers, you can slot him in there of guys who are established starters. DeAndre Jordan will be on that. DeMarcus will be there. Who knows what he's going to look like? Al Horford has a player option. Hard to see him not returning to Boston. I mean, also opting in. I mean, I think he's over 30 million for next year, I believe. What is he at? He is at, yeah, 30.1 million next year on his own player options. So to some degree, it might make sense to try to zag while Al Horford zigs. Another thing we might consider too is I think if he wants to stay in Memphis, you could just see an extension for a couple of years as well. You know, maybe that would happen rather than him opting out. He's making enough at 26 million next year that you can easily build an extension off of that that would pay him enough so i think if he opts out to me that's a sign that he probably wants to be elsewhere and otherwise they could just easily work out an extension for him uh, if uh they wanted to go in that direction I, I would be surprised to see him opt in i guess i think he either extends or he opts out 
One quick note I wanted to make, because uh, I forgot to do this the previous time we talked about the Grizzlies. Before the season, I think you and I both said that if Memphis was in the Eastern Conference, we would just feel so much better about their situation. Right now, 538, as we said, projects them to go 500, 41 and 41. That's two wins out in the West and tied for 10th. If that same win projection, remember, they'd be playing a higher share of their games against weaker teams. That same 41 and 41 record would be the sixth seed in the Eastern Conference. Oof. Uh how do you think Jaron Jackson compares as a prospect to a similar age Chris Bosch as uh, Sam Strum? Got about a minute left here. Bosch, to me, I think that's an interesting one. Jackson has shown much more defensively. Remember, Bosch was super skinny. Jackson's got some more heft to him. Bosch really did not become a good defensive player despite having the tools until he got to Miami and was more activated in their aggressive system, flying all over the court, getting out on pick and roll defense. In Toronto, he was played on some really atrocious defenses. And but I think Bosch at this point, you know, they were similar ages when they both came out. Much higher skill level. The jump shot in terms of facing up looks much better. Bosch built so much of it. I mean, he was averaging 24 a game back when that meant something for the Raptors. Obviously not that early in his career, but even as soon as his second year, he had that face up jab step game, able to shoot the ball from mid-range, which was kind of the foundation of what he was doing. I think Bosch is maybe a little bit more explosive, a little bit more quickness as well off the dribble could get up a little bit higher defensively obviously jackson a much better shot blocker probably a better just pure post-up guy using his size better offensive rebounder um i think the biggest difference between the two is just jackson as we've talked about with that low release it's tough for him to have that jab step game to set up his drive game obviously jackson is a more accomplished long-range shooter than bosh who didn't really even embrace the three until well into his miami tenure really 2012 was the first year that he started shooting the three even in the playoffs when he kind of couldn't do anything else with that core muscle injury so i mean if jackson could be as good as bosh was over his career i think you'd be doing cartwheels uh, and he's got some advantages but some disadvantages but i think it's an interesting comparison i think bosh will be a better individual offensive player uh but you know jackson could be better defensively than him and maybe a better long long-range bomber um so there's certainly there's a reason why we had him uh rank pretty highly on our prospect spot something remarkable when you think about how quickly the league has changed chris bosh did not attempt 53s in a season until his age 28 season and did not attempt 100 in a, a year until his age 29 season and that's just changed so much and yeah he, he became a better shooter with time but jaron jackson benefits from being in an era where that will be encouraged from him since when he was like 16 years old let's move to the wolves 17 and 19 they did have a monster win in miami today carl anthony towns six blocks six assists 34 and 17 just a a crazy game for him right at zero their net rating which is 19th in the nba shows you how there's some real bad teams out there uh 13th ranked offense at 110 and the 18th ranked defense also at 110 they project for 41 wins which uh it would be a tie for 10th and uh 27 playoff odds uh, interestingly enough they too like the mavericks have really struggled on the road this season uh dj rexad former sbc student of mine where would you peg minnesota's ceiling following the jimmy butler trade and how could they raise said ceiling I mean, a lot of it depends on Carl Anthony Towns. They're going to have to, I mean, I think they they have 
defensive talent that makes a lot of sense here, but he's going to have to take a step. And how they raise that ceiling is also getting a primary creator, ideally a great pick and roll guard there. However, with their financial obligations to Towns and to Wiggins, that gets really hard. You know, it's a challenging thing to do from a math perspective. So I would say their ceiling over the next couple of years, you know, maybe they could pull a, uh, they could pull a series. I don't, I, I think they'd be more likely to make the playoffs and lose in, in the first round than to make the playoffs and win in the first round. But I think that's reasonable. And if Towns takes another big leap, becomes an MVP candidate, then maybe they move up an echelon from there. But I think that real creator with the ball in his hands is the most important thing for raising their ceiling. Oh, no, I think Andrew Wiggins uh, could improve and, you know, he, he could become that second star that they've been waiting for. Yeah. Yeah. He, he can definitely motivate the fans. That, that's something he can do. <laughs> yeah. Andrew, uh, after having a horrendous game that started with him forgetting his to put his jersey on at the start of the game to the point where the equipment managers racing back into the locker room to get the jersey and it looked like i think a coach was gonna have to start the game for him finally the the uh equipment guy grabs it and gets him his jersey before the game starts in that like 90 second period uh and then he proceeded to miss a bunch of key free throws down the end they lost at home to what was that that was the hawks right yeah i think it was the hawks yes it was uh, that was a weird and, game and wiggins uh, really struggled struggled yet again tonight and so he was asked about the booze and he said well you know we have some good fans and some shitty fans and uh, my response to that well which one is, were booing you because <laughs> he i mean i think the good fans should the one the ones who didn't get the same promises well is it the ones who didn't get the same promise from glenn Ta- as glenn taylor did or is it the ones who did and feel betrayed by it i mean holy shit um but but yeah but i want to hear you answer the question about their their ceiling yeah well it's difficult and that's obviously why uh dave rex said came with the question because they don't have a ton of assets in the war chest you know they're going to be picking probably 10th or below here for some time carl anthony towns is just that good that you're not going to be you know probably below 30 to 35 wins no matter what you have uh, around there and you know covington charge i mean those are solid starter level of players around him and teague's okay they got uh, jones are getting good production from rose so they're gonna be decent you would think maybe you could say that coaching could help them maybe that just unleashing towns even more getting more spacing around him just driving this team to being like a top five offense because he's so good but i don't think they quite have that level of talent uh and i think tibbs is doing a pretty good job getting what he has out of them defensively to get them to 18th with this group and very solid since the trade. remember they were at the bottom part of the league before the butler trade so i mean they can just have some big coup they're not gonna have cap space for some time either now with towns and wiggins and towns is starting to play well enough now that maybe the thought of him making all nba this year i can't remember the exact criteria of, of whether he has to make like second team or something to uh trigger that 30 percent max but that's going to make them even more impacted so yeah they when you look at the team building tools of the draft trade assets or cap space you know they are relatively poor in all of those right now so maybe it's and they also don't really have a long-term solution at point guard either so yeah it's they got to find a way to get another great perimeter creator and it's tough when you're paying a perimeter creator who doesn't really create very much and doesn't do it very efficient efficiently like he's the number one option on the wing question from ben Uh, uh, well uh, and to finish i mean where would we peg the ceiling Oh, yeah. I don't know, maybe 50 wins if they have a good year. And that's the ceiling. You know, I mean, I think they're going to be, you know, probably in the high 30s, low 40s, which frankly is better than we
we thought they would be without Jimmy Butler. Oh, yeah. Uh, so I think they've done well in the aftermath to get to where they are, but that's uh, very short term at this point in time. And so this is why Carl uh, Anthony Towns screwed up by taking a full five-year deal with no player option. So the question from uh, Ben Schluss is, Minnesota has the ninth best net rating since the trade. Is that sustainable? I actually just checked it after the Miami game. They're up to sixth. They have a plus 4.4 net rating during that time, which extrapolates out to a 52-win pace, which is remarkable. Tenth in offense, ninth in defense. And no, I think that's a little bit too rosy. I mean, to me, they're they're capable on both those ends. You can make an argument they could be a top 10 offense, and then their defense has been great so yeah. far. I, I think they will but be a top I think 10 a lot of that. I, I believe in them being a top 10 offense. I mean, you remember the first Tibbs year, they were, were a top yeah, 10 Yeah, and so... And so since since the trade, they're top they're top eight in three of the four factors, and the only one they're not top eight in, in is effective field goal percentage. And when you look at this team, other than some limitations from three, they should be pretty good there. I mean, you yeah. have Towns, and, and remember they played a lot of that time without Jeff Teague, who has generally been important for them, and just how the the cascading effects in their rotation. So I think that's Rosie. Maybe I, so I was thinking about them maybe more as like a plus you know, like a, a plus two team being on the more rosy side of that plus two team would be 47 wins. I think somewhere in that range, I think that's a, a little bit more realistic, maybe 50 if they win some close games and everything like that. So no, I don't think being sixth in net rating being a plus 4.4 is sustainable over the long term because that's a really freaking good team. Yeah. And we've also seen, you know, 4.4 usually is not sixth. Like you would have more teams that are higher than sixth as well. Right. With, I mean, we've seen a lot of the really good teams struggle for whatever reason we'll get to the spurs later the uh net rating over the month of december is a, a rather interesting list talk pels now here 16 and 21 ugly loss uh, they did pull one out uh, late uh, against Luka Doncic and the Mavs AD just an unbelievable scoring game he just abused Maxi Kleba in that one uh got into the mid 40s and points and was able to bring it home there but they are still really struggling two and seven since uh the last 15 and 60 but still a plus 0.8 net rating they now are the fifth unluckiest team in the NBA oh wait I'm sorry that's only over the last month <laughs> <laughs> no they're second yeah they are second overall yeah so uh and congratulations to the charlotte hornets who are now all the way to 26th <laughs> yeah well yeah. you keep getting blown out and you can really you can make yourself <laughs> seem a lot luckier i guess so the third ranked offense still i mean that's a pretty solid but 25th in defense and hard to say you know the big injury has been alfred payton and nicole miritich like are those guys the lack of them really hurting the defense that much uh and they project for 42 wins which would be out of the playoffs 44 percent playoff odds we could start with this one uh Anton Nortja, N-O-R-T-J. Pelicans fan, do you recommend Harikiri? I think he means seppuku. Uh, or Pills? Is there any way that I can make my sacrifice redound to the detriment of the Lakers? And can we make the Celtics shut up about their overrated assets in the meantime? <laughs> uh, I, I don't know if you can make your sacrifice go to somebody else. That would require somebody with a more spiritual acumen than I have. But... Yeah, it, it's tough. And I mean, there is a chance this works out. I mean, because remember, the part of the beauty of sports is that it all depends on individual preferences. And so if Anthony Davis wants to stay in New Orleans, if what some of the very positive things he has said about the city and the organization are not lip service, but how he genuinely feels that it could go a different direction. And 
I really enjoy watching the Pelicans. They've been frustrating over the stretch. In that game against the Rockets, I thought they absolutely could have won. There were a few kind of sloppy plays in there. And Houston, that was, you know, Harden was awesome. But I, I do think that they left the door open a little bit. And since that was New Orleans at home, they actually had a chance to win that game. And the defensive yeah, part of this is, is really... on the road, I think the Pels are? Yeah, I think yeah, I think that sounds about right. And so this is a, a point here. So Anthony Davis, they're about, you know, league average defense when he's on the floor now, which is worse than they were before. They're 110 about. They have a 117 defensive rating when Anthony Davis is not on the floor. That is, I mean, that's just inexcusable, yeah. even though their defensive talent without him isn't good. That's just terrible. Yeah, I mean, and, and that's going against second units a lot of the time too when he's out. So yeah, I mean, AD certainly you got to look at the team like, hey, when I'm on the floor, we're pretty good, and then we suck when I'm off the floor. That's not my fault. That's that's the sort of thing that could make you think, wow, like every time I go out, we give up the lead. Uh, maybe I should go somewhere where that doesn't happen anymore. So I mean, there's all these questions about what the Pels should do with AD, and we've we've talked probably a little bit more about what they will do with him, and it's my prediction that they will go more for present valued assets i mean we haven't seen for quite some time now a trade like of a player like ad built around really draft picks right and because anywhere that he's going to want to go and stay probably is not going to have that great of draft picks that's what made that Kyrie trade so unique in nba history was that Kyrie was going to go to a good team where he wanted to stay but that team actually had that brooklyn pick that became colin Sexton to, to be the centerpiece of the trade i mean i think the pels you probably just wait it out and try and get the best deal you can from boston you know, I mean, I think that that's it. The Boston, much whether uh, their assets are overrated or not, they're certainly about a lot better than the Lakers' assets, in my opinion, at this point. Now, I think the other thing you might do, other than that playbook, is because if you only have one bidder, it's tough to create leverage. Is to really explore moving him at this trade deadline because they're just—it's not going to happen for them. They're not going to get to a conference finals. They're not going to win enough to convince him to stick around and even if they do get to a conference final somehow this year it was such a trying year it would have taken such a herculean effort from davis and then they've got all these guys who could be free agents next year they might even be able to bring back this team anyway so i think they should explore moving him now i think they should realize that the writing is on the wall and try to get an offer from a team more of a dark horse offer a team that's actually like pretty good but might want to trade some guys you know i've floated portland in the past for example but something along those lines where you can get some guys back and still maybe be competitive over the next couple years if that's what you're trying to do i still think they should try to go for the pure rebuild uh but you want to at least open up some options and when you can trade davis and the team receiving him can get him for two playoffs even if he doesn't necessarily want to resign there and especially if that team like say toronto a year ago is kind of maxed out with where they've been and portland's another team that would fall into that category you might be able to get some pretty good assets back there and try to make a run at staying competitive i guess that's that's what i would say they should be doing even if ultimately you know i think they want to end up going with boston the fact that they can't make the trade with boston now though is a little bit of an impediment uh for new orleans to me it's an impediment for a couple of reasons. One of them being just leverage to get better offers. I mean, teams are sitting there going, well, I mean, look at what else is out there right now. And another big problem is that there aren't that many teams that are good right now and have both the top line assets and then the the incentive to, to really push in place. So like, you know, like, yeah, would, would Anthony Davis make any team better? Obviously, yes. But like Toronto, theoretically, like they have a lot of assets. They have all you guys like Siakam and everything like that. But are they going to do that? Are they going to go all 
in for Anthony Davis or something? Probably not. Philly is another complicated situation. Like, could they theoretically throw Ben Simmons into a deal like that? Maybe would they? They would try to do it with anybody else, but I don't think their other combinations really work too well. So. Yeah, I think you listen and you kind of get a, get a gauge on it and try to see where things are. But the, the idea about being optimistic and kind of seeing where the season goes is, I think, well-founded. Because right now, especially considering how far behind they already are of the top seeds, their path to any sort of sustained success, even to where they were last year when they you know swept in the fir- out of the first round, then they got to the second round, they ended up going out to the Warriors, but like that's going to be, that's going to be hard sledding for them. I mean, they're going to be a, if they make the playoffs, a bottom, probably a bottom three seed. And that's hard. We did get a question about what Drew Holiday's trade value might look like if they moved on from Davis. We actually talked about that on our Patreon mailbag that came out yesterday. So once again, I would encourage you to subscribe there at patreon.com slash Duncan LaRue if you want to hear us talk about that. Let's move to the Thunder 22 and 13, but only six and five since the last 15 and 60. They fell to the Mavericks in Dallas tonight. Russell Westbrook, 4 of 22 shooting, wasted a boss performance by Paul George, as Zach Lowe would say, in the fourth quarter. But they are still second in the entire NBA in net rating at plus 6.9 per cleaning the glass. 19th ranked offense, that's not amazing, but they sport the number one defense in the NBA and project for 54 wins second in the conference. They will make the playoffs almost certainly. Where do you want to start here? Uh, Let's start with... A question I actually had a fair amount of this from Toby Detmar. What in particular makes Stephen Adams a good defender? And Stephen Adams, so I want to start with this. He is exactly the type of player that a stat like defensive RPM underrates because a lot of his value is not necessarily reflected in statistics. He is an excellent, excellent, excellent box out guy who doesn't necessarily grab a lot of rebounds. And I understand why I'm not, you know, this isn't a a huge criticism of of RPM. You have to deal with the inputs you have. And most players who are centers who don't have great defensive rebounding numbers aren't, are are more negative on that end, but he happens to have those positives. He's also, I would say a very capable pick and roll defender. And while he doesn't put up great shot blocking numbers, he is a very good shot contester and shot changer. Not, you know, like elite, not like in the Gobert category, but I think he does a very good job there. So he doesn't make many mistakes. He, helps them keep their system integrity a lot and then he and he allows every cleans up messes and makes everything work i so i think he's a wonderful defensive player i'm not sure i would have him i have to think about this more if he's in the defensive player of the year conversation but i think he is a significant positive for them and you see that in terms of the way okc defends with and without him over the last few years yeah and i do think we are at the point now where we have the ability to make better products than rpm because rpm can be so influenced by say really hot opponent three-point shooting or really cold opponent three-point shooting that you know a center isn't necessarily affecting that so much right and same thing on offense where you can kind of try to take luck out of it just a little bit i know jacob goldstein has done some work on that which i need to familiarize myself with a, a little bit more and maybe start using some of those stats rather than rpm but rpm in theory it's supposed to measure a player's impact on his team's performance based on who is on the floor with him what the difference is when he's on and off the floor and then who uh, is on the floor for the opponents when he's out there but you run into some real issues especially early in the season even over a full year uh, in terms of the sample size and so to make it more stable they basically put in 
what's kind of like a box plus minus right where you say okay these are the box score stats that generally correlate with positive team performance so we're going to use these to kind of make this stat more stable so it's not bouncing around all the time and that generally helps the stat if you want to have an all-in-one number stat it's better for having that because the box score stats are more stable than the on-off stuff at times but there are certain players clay thompson is another one famously who especially defensively don't put up the box score stats or you know really likes defensive rebounding and block shots a lot so deandre jordan in my opinion has always been overrated by that statistic and so adams that's probably a a big reason why he's underrated it doesn't really capture for example the effect of him boxing out and letting other guys get rebounds russell westbrook um speaking of russell westbrook yeah go ahead sorry actually one other quick point there there's also a big uh, a difference so far this year in terms of proportion of sh- opponent shots at the rim when adams is on the floor and Nerlens noel and noel gets a lot of credit as a rim projector as he should know Nerlens is doing doing well this year and okc has had better rim defense with adams on the floor every single one of his seasons as a starter except for last year and you know that could just be you know it happens every, every once yeah. in a while and uh, and uh, also real quickly I, I, that that's notable uh, rpm is also very sensitive particularly early in the year to your backup being awful and like Devin Booker for example is very high in offensive RPM this year and he's gotten better to be sure but a big part of that is just that they have absolutely nobody else on this team who can handle the ball and do anything and in the games that he's missed they've also shot it a little bit better in the games that he's been there in probably an unsustainable way but in the games that he's missed they just have been so bad offensively that I think it just over calibrates for that a little bit like sometimes they'll be the team will be so bad when the guy's off the floor that it just like it breaks the system you know Spencer Dinwiddie I thought was kind of like that last year when the Nets were just terrible whenever D'Angelo Russell was on the floor and so Dinwiddie uh, though I like him you know was not the fifth best point guard in basketball last year or whatever he was by RPM for much of the season especially early on so that's that's another thing to look at there as a limitation of rpm um but this is not that thunder specific so we should, we probably owe it to uh give a little bit more to this thunder team a couple of questions about westbrook one is is westbrook showing signs of decline this year is he just in a rough slump another complaint that we're not giving westbrook the same pass we've given other players coming back from injury referencing a westbrook ankle sprain i mean you could also even reference the knee surgery that he had at the start of the year um and i think when guys come back from injury especially if they're older it's tough to know well what is the injury what is it the fact that he's 30 um but the other problem is that his shooting has been in decline even going back to last year and and that's the biggest thing just his inability to hit a jump shot that's been hurting him a a ton right now and so is that due to injury that he can't make a jump shot uh, you know uh, or he can't make a free throw i'm not sure about that you know jump shooting in place we've seen guys with lower body injuries can get affected there but the fact that it's a continuation of a trend from last year i find that to be pretty worrisome and the fact that he's at an age where guys are going to start declining pretty quickly especially guys with his type of game um so we try to acknowledge that guys have come back from injury you know maybe we were guilty of not mentioning the ankle sprain as much of that was that was something that wasn't on my radar quite as much it looked like it was going to be a really ugly injury and then it, it, it turned out to be relatively okay and he's been back uh but 
so he may get better i mean if you had to ask me is he gonna continue to shoot this badly from the free throw line in the field uh, on jumpers all year no i think he's gonna get better he's got a little bit better of a track record there uh but no certainly it is very very concerning the way he's played and it's too bad because this thunder team has been so good and george has been so good if he could get close to the level he was at two years ago i might start thinking about this team as like a real contender for the championship but i just as it stands now 19th ranked offense i just don't think they have the firepower ultimately if I were to tell you that Russell Westbrook was shooting 36% on jump shots and 30% from three, you'd be like, oh, that's that's not great. That's what he did last year. That's not this year. Yeah. You know, like, and so so if he gets back to that level, he had a you know 52 true shooting last year on 34% usage. So, and you know, defensively, he's been a part of successful defenses, but it's hard to argue that other than defensive rebounding, he is a you know an integral part of that. He is, uh, you know, I would say he's a net positive, but he's not a huge net positive. He's not the reason that the Thunder defense has been so great. Yeah, and I think we'll look back on his MVP season. I mean, there are many who have said, oh, the way he's played since then is like shows how stupid it was to to vote for him but i mean i think both in terms of how well he played in the clutch that year and just shooting way above his career norms despite having you know setting the nba usage record uh i think we just look at that more as one of the all-time you know kind of outlier seasons in a guy's career i mean he's been an all nba performer at other points in his career but you know to do that in 16 17 i mean he was really that good or at least provided that much value uh in 16 17 but you know i think we kind of realized that that was a, a fluke uh, at the time and yeah i mean it's gonna it looks you like and that. i had him like we both put him as our mvp and i think we had him like seventh in our best player rankings that yeah. same season so that and and if there are people who want the mvp award to be best player too bad that's not the award they're giving out you can ask them to put out another award for best player most outstanding or whatever else most valuable is something very specific and like i got this from somebody who was talking about oh the mvp award is bs and all this kind of stuff it's like yeah except that the mvp award uh, by and large over the last 10 years has had exceedingly deserving winners you know there are you know if you dig deeper and further out then there's some but russell westbrook he deserved it we did a whole freaking like hour and a half long podcast on this like if people want to go back and and use it as a time capsule of sorts we did it on like the last day of the regular season it's it's worthwhile for that and uh, we'll do this one quickly from blacktops from for, uh, what plausible options do the thunder have to improve their bench scoring or get a 3d player 3d players are effectively impossible to get on the buyout market it's exceedingly rare to get somebody who can actually play because the guys who are good enough get traded for if they even get moved at all like justin holiday i would be shocked if he hits the buyout market or because somebody's gonna get him and okc does not have a lot of salary flexibility all that kind of stuff and their draft picks are compounded due to various things bench scoring i mean isn't that kind of why they got dennis schroeder i mean they've used him as a starter at certain moments in time but i don't think they intend to do that so they could probably add a very limited flawed bench score for the minimum as a buyout guy later on but three and d it's just it's too heavy a thing and that's part of why we were critical of the shooter trade is that they threw assets including that protected first round pick into getting shooter but he didn't solve those problems real quickly is paul george in the serious mvp discussion for either of you i, I would not say so yet at this point in time he, he's having a wonderful season i don't expect him to shoot it quite as well the rest of the year i mean so so much of his value is based on the ability to hit the jump shot but i mean whether it's rebounding better um he's been 
assisting more he's been on the ball more this year usage is up four percent as well and he's been more efficient he's having a wonderful wonderful season don't get me wrong but he's still not quite in the echelon of some of the absolute top guys to me and i think he needs to still do more offensively you know he's not quite in that category for me of makes an efficient offense all by himself the way some of these guys are needs to provides more defensive value than a lot of those dudes do uh but you know i think i would have him just below uh, that first tier you know probably in like the six seven type of range if he keeps this up all year then maybe i i would feel a little bit differently uh by the end of it because I, I think i'm pricing in a little bit of performance regression over the rest of the year but so i don't know do you feel any differently about it or no not particularly. I mean, I, th- I think maybe he doesn't have to prove as much to me to get into that top tier, but to get to number one, there's still a lot of guys to jump over because even though nobody's having that supremely dominant season, think about that Paul George has been towards the top end of his best so far and other guys have room to grow. I mean, Harden's been completely ridiculous over the last little while. Curry missed a big portion of the season. And then you also have, of course, AD, Giannis, so many other candidates. So you can have him i wouldn't be object too hard to having him in the conversation but having him at the front of the conversation would be a little bit wonky and at that point then it's it's a different conversation let's move on to the phoenix suns they are nine and 28 that might not sound inspiring but they're five and six since the last time we did that so that's a significant upgrade they are now 26th in net rating 28th in offense 27th in defense 538 projects them to win 22 games which is last in the eastern conference and would be the third worst record in the league behind the uh, or yeah behind head of however you want to say it the Cavs and the Knicks so they would they would be you know two wins worse than the Hawks for for third and fourth respectively all right so a, a few things here I actually went on the uh Sun Solar Panel podcast with uh Dave and Tim I think that's coming out tomorrow so we talked for basically an hour about uh why they feel I underrated Booker and Aiden so if you want to hear that uh, it should be a, an interesting listen. Um, but I, I can address a few of these. I probably even based on the eight games or so since we did those rankings, I would rank him a little bit higher in the prospect rankings, but not significantly so. Um, and, and there are some who are like, oh, you excluded him from the list. That's not true. He was uh, in the same tier as Fox and Murray, basically next, neck and necks with some of those guys. And a few of the points that I made on the pod, and you know, we talked about this at length, so I'm not going to get too deeply into it, was I'm valuing a top 10% outcome for guys maybe like Smith or Murray or De'Aaron Fox. I think those guys have the ability with their physical tools and the type of games they have to be top 15 players. I don't think that Booker, just due to the fact that there are not guys who meet his physical profile, who have really fallen into that category over the last few years. The closest the, the guys mentioned uh, on the show was Brandon Roy, although uh, I disagreed a little bit there. I think they're, they're relatively close, but I think Roy had more explosion off the dribble, and he had a 40-inch vertical, too. I mean, that guy actually could, could get up. I think he, he was also physically stronger, too. Yeah, although that's probably an underrated aspect of Booker's game, his ability to, to get sure. those spots and his size. But so... Yeah, and so is Murray still better than Booker? I didn't say that Murray was better than Booker. I thought he would be... I would rather have him for the rest of my or the rest of his career and that doesn't even say that I believe that Murray is likely to have the better career than Booker it's that I believe that Murray has the higher upside and I'm all about trying to find ways to win championships and win at the highest levels so I value up 
upside a, a lot more and you know as someone like dennis smith perhaps we talked about why we, we have some upside for him earlier in the show if he doesn't take a step forward over the next year and he kind of locks into what he is which is probably likely but i still think he has a chance of really hitting the ceiling as that becomes less likely then he drops off the list and somebody else comes on booker to me is he's taking some steps forward but he's kind of a known quantity in terms of what his ceiling may be uh we talked a little bit already about his improvement by rpm a lot of that's him getting better becoming a better distributor but a lot of that too is just the fact that they've absolutely sucked with him off the floor and you know he shouldn't get a benefit from the fact that they have no other good point guards on the roster it's one of the flaws of rpm especially early in the season um yeah. And, yeah. and something i want to mention there they have a 111 offensive rating when booker's on the floor that is strong you know that that's 65th percentile so far they have, you know, decent, not ridiculously good offensive talent. I'd say that's maybe overperforming their talent level by a little bit. And Booker should get the lion's share of that credit, to be sure. Yeah. Just like he shouldn't get the lion's share of the credit with them sucking with him off. But I don't think that he's like dragging a, a, a bad offensive lineup to, to dominance or anything like that. Because A, they're not being dominant. And B, I think their offensive talent is underappreciated. And some of that is actually maybe underrating what DeAndre Ayton has done so far this year. Yeah, that's that's interesting. We talked a lot about eight and two um and where we see him as a prospect in his ceiling so I, again I, I don't want to ruin the surprise and I, I do recommend listening to that um to talk a, a lot about the suns see if there's any other booker ones here that i wanted to address um yeah also worth noting i mean this has arguably been the best stretch of his career booker and so you don't want to get too caught up in that uh, and the, he also has done a lot of what he's been doing against some really really juicy matchups uh, over these last uh, i think it's eight games now since he returned from the hamstring injury so as i've said many times if he plays the way he's played these last eight games the rest of the season uh, my opinion of him will probably increase uh, significantly and That'll actually be very convenient for me because then my opinion of him will actually match up with the inflated opinions of, of him that a lot of people seem to have, um, or at least inflated opinions of what he has done to this point. And the fact that he's so young and he's doing this, there is something to be said for, hey, he's doing this at this age and at 22, he's going to continue to take step forwards. And it's hard to know, okay, is it just linear based on his age? He's going to keep getting better. Or is there a ceiling based on where he is physically right now <clears throat> or what his physical tools are? Um, I've talked for a while here. So you want to take a few of these other ones before we move on to Portland? Sure. Uh, do you think a Zion DeAndre in front court would work from Miles Jameson? I don't think it would be a lot of value added because defensively, it's kind of hard to make that work. You know, I like some of what both of those players can bring, but playing them together, that means somebody's always guarding a forward, gets into some weird things there. And because they're both, you know, fine shooters, but not really plus shooters. And so playing them together, I think it gets easier to defend each of them. So if you can have them be kind of stagger plus, so you play them, you know, 30 something minutes and then they, they largely separate out and then maybe you open and close with them. Sure, you can get there. But I would rather see Zion Williamson on almost every other team because of that exact reason that I don't think those guys add too much to each other. Yeah, I think that's right. I think now you take Zion if he's there and you get the pick, of course. But yeah, I don't really care for that. But I mean, you would start to run into some of the problems that we've seen with Marvin Bagley as well, who's been a pretty decent offensive player. I, I don't expect Zion early on in his career to be a, a decent shooter from three and eight and has a long way to go to get there if he's ever going to. Um, 
so you would have to have a ton of shooting around those guys now you could almost kind of use zion as like a blake griffin ben simmons type of guy and play booker off the ball more and then try to get a couple of other shooters around them really more pure shooters and maybe that's how you would have to make that work um to just put the ball in zion's hands a lot more and let him grab and go and push the ball and then maybe that's how that would work but if you're gonna have both those guys playing off the ball a lot or you're gonna try and post them up it it can get a, a little difficult i think uh and then one nice thing though is that the vertical spacing element is so good that if you have one of those guys in the dunker spots like they are actual dunkers and so if you're running a pick and roll with Aiton and zion's in the dunker spot and zion's man tries to cheat over you just throw it up to the square and zion will put it on that guy's head so it would make it easier but yeah i agree with you it's not the most amazing fit how's uber look for the suns i think he's looked good we talked about that pretty extensively last week when we talked about their game against the magic um what would you consider a successful season for the suns at this point i mean i think if they they could play at a even a 30 win pace the rest of the year i think that would be a step forward to be sure and still keeps them in a solid draft position as well yeah for for, for me it would be more about how their players look sure, you know sure. Aiton looks unambiguously like their center of the future booker can be an offensive positive force ide- ideally a linchpin type guy and then somebody else looks like a starter of the future you know whoever that is if it's mikhail bridges tj warren josh jackson whoever like just somebody else to step yeah, in there let's, because let's keep need... it within the realm of, of realistic here maybe because they're going to need all, uh, and and i will I, i'm not sure if i'm impressed or disappointed in your restraint that you talked about booker and jamal murray and that suns fans couldn't keep talking their shit because jamal murray dropped 46 on them on saturday so <laughs> Like, yeah. Well, oh, but, oh, okay. Oh, yeah. If I'm, but if I'm saying, hey, let's not overreact to like an eight-game hot streak by. Yeah, Booker, but it, it was just funny. Like they, they, the, all the Jamal Murray, Devin Booker stuff, and a lot of theirs relies on scoring. I mean, Devin Booker's also been a great. He's been a much better creator to me. I, I've been impressed with what he's done, especially over the last eight games. But overall, this year, I think he's taken some real strides. And then Jamal Murray just drops that game on them right as the like. It's not crescendoing because it crescendos as soon as that podcast comes out. But yeah, I want to mention that. But I think we're ready to move on to the Portland Trailblazers. Blazers are 20 and 16, 5 and 5 since the last time we did this. They are a plus 0.2 net rating, which puts them 17th in the league, 11th in offense, 19th in defense, which is pretty significantly off what they did last year. That's not something we're going to talk about necessarily right now, but I wanted to mention it. 44th in wins is the 538 projection, which would tie them for sixth. And 538 gives them a 60% chance of making the playoffs. I actually would like to talk about that because you did some research on this uh, when you forgot that we were actually doing <laughs> doing the mailbag. And so I yeah, think, I think you we... like last week when I did, uh, yeah, when I did like uh, I did like three hours of research, forgetting that we weren't doing the fifteen and sixteen. <laughs> We've actually incorporated a lot of that over the course of the week, but it's things I wanted to dig into anyway because like sometimes I wake up early in the morning on like a Saturday and go, these are the things I want to answer, and I just start going. And yeah, I started getting into the Blazers, and something that I found was really interesting is. In since Terry Stotts took over, the Blazers have been t- better than 20th. So in the you know 19th or better in defensive rating, only three times. Those three seasons are the only three seasons that they've been top 10 in opponent and effective field goal percentage. So sure, th- I mean they they have been really good in those years, and they they have these consistent benefits in terms of things at the rim. But I think last year I had there, in my head there was always this time, and this is making me reevaluate how I've been talking about the Pacers all year, where it, it always felt a little bit fluky. And like when I started looking back through their historical 
historical data, a lot of it does seem a little bit fluky, though there are some mitigation complications in here in terms of opponent three-point percentage, too. Yeah. Now, you did mention two of the three times, and this is Stas, I think, seventh year now, amazingly, in Portland. Uh, that was a different group, right? That was the Aldridge, the West Matthews, the Nick Batum group, 13, yeah. 14, and 14, 15. So it, perhaps more interesting is with this current group, this is now the fourth year of that team, starting in 15, 16 with the, the Lillard McCollum centric group. You know, they've had a little bit of a changing cast of centers, but you know, Aminu has been a part of that as well. Uh, they've only really had the good defense one year, which was last year. And yeah, they are very reliant, it seems like, on making teams miss. Now, some of that was just the crazy good opponent field goal percentage at the rim. And part of that's just due to the positioning. Part of that is because Nurkic has, has been pretty good for them. Um, but, you know, it seems pretty clear to me that if you want to project what they're going to be going forward, I don't see this team being, you know, a solid top half of the league defense. And so then, you know, they're right back where they've always been. I mean, 11th in offense is probably not good enough for this group. They've really struggled offensively, in particular, you know, when with these groups with CJ and Dame off the floor. And they actually gave up a 9-0 run. That was the key moment of the game yesterday uh, when Steph Curry uh, was going against his brother and got a little revenge on him for the eighth straight that Seth put on his head uh, on Thursday night. And they went on a 9-0 run and the Blazers really never got back, I think, within eight the rest of the way. So they're still struggling with that group tonight against Philly they left McCollum out there with that group and it went a lot better so it it does seem though they're very reliant on teams kind of missing shots and you noted that they've gotten probably lucky on opponent jump shooting both mid-rangers and three-pointers these last few years uh well actually no they've gotten really unlucky oh oh i'm sorry yeah you said bottom three okay yeah my bad yeah I I looked at the percentages right afterwards so that's actually yeah yeah yeah, so they've given up basically like 38% three-point shooting in three of the last four years. And then they've given up rough, meaning strong, like opponent mid-range shooting, 42%, 43% over the last couple of years. And so this this idea, I would need to watch more film to get into it. But what I was thinking is maybe they're selling out too hard to prevent shots in specific areas. And so they're conceding superior looks in areas that are traditionally less efficient. And so teams might just be making more of those because the looks, you know, like the shot quality is better than expected in those yeah. areas. They're kind of like the That's anti-Spurs not- offense, uh, except on defense this year, right? Maybe. They're just- uh, it's something I want to dig into more, but I sure. found it really interesting. Um, all right, let's get to the questions here. Do you guys think Damian Lillard is Steph Curry light as uh, a belly and grape? I hope I pronounced sure. that correctly. I mean, Lillard is, Lillard is a special off the dribble three point shooter, not at the level of Steph Curry, but he's fantastic. He has that shot, that like 28 footer in his, in his arsenal. Both guys are kind of, they're good passers, but they're not insane passers. Lillard is, of course, a significantly better vertical athlete than Steph Curry is and, and really does use that as a finisher, but they're, they're good finishers now. They've both progressed a lot in different ways. So yeah, I, I think that Lillard to me, off the top of my head, but I've thought about it before. I think he is the closest facsimile that we have right now in the league to Stephen Curry. He, he is the next best at what Steph Curry does. Yeah, I mean, it's very light. And that's not to say that he's not a really good player, but just the volume of three-point shooting and then, you know, to be basically over 40% every year, you know, Lillard has been kind of in the 38 to 34% range. And he's nowhere near the off-ball threat 
that Steph is um and but he's much better at getting to the basket and getting to the foul line finishing at the room he had this finish over Draymond last night that was just unbelievable um and obviously he's got to do a lot more for his team than Curry does you know they don't have nearly as much talent so yeah I mean I've always maintained that he's kind of an underrated player he has had some uh, failures in the playoffs which you know that's something that you're gonna have to deal with evaluating him uh francis mack asked should the blazers be more willing to spend a first round pick to improve their roster with the playoff race so tight and a shallow draft next year and i think again where you're gonna end up probably is you know maybe a myers leonard going out someone who can play coming back in hopefully a guy with some wing ability uh by the way they need to stop playing nick stauskas whether it's jake layman or even i think wade baldwin you know stauskas just can't hit a three and he provides absolutely nothing else so time to move on from him they could use an upgrade at that spot as well you know maybe one more guy who can run a pick and roll what if they could get uh shaz napier back from uh brooklyn who uh had over 30 points the other night but you know i mean i think they should be willing to i guess you know we're kind of reaching an inflection point to some degree with lillard it's pushed back a year because he didn't get the player option on that designated player rookie ex- extension that he signed at the same time that ad signed his and he's also older as well so we've talked before about if he does qualify for designated player veteran extension do they want to give that to him or not do they need to convince him to stay is he that level of player where we got to convince him to stay maybe not but i mean something's kind of got to give here you would think and i don't know that trading cj mccollum is really the way to go either what his value is i still think they should maybe try to add to this team in some way so yeah i think they should look and see what's out there they probably would want to move off of some salary as well the fact too though is that their ownership situation's in a little bit of flux right now with the the untimely death of, of paul allen and so going into the tax increasing a, a payment would they want to cut salary to help sell the team those kind of factors are going to come into play here as well uh should we move on to the kings well i just want to briefly say that there's also the question of what does that upside give them i mean it's hard for me to anticipate really picking them you know absent a favorable matchup to win in the first round and it's hard you know it's hard for me to think of a situation that really changes that you know specific matchups maybe i could put them there but the top of the west is strong this is a very a very deep conference and so does having the fifth seed or even the fourth seed and potentially losing in the first round again as being the top seed is that worth it and and the way that it might might be as if they could get a player like you talked about the Myers Leonard deal who helps them for multiple seasons because I don't think it's worth it to go all in for this year but if you can get somebody that can help you out for a couple that that could be useful now we can move on to sack the Kings are 19 and 16 six and four since the last 15 and 60 they just keep on winning other than Sunday night which is not counted in those stats they are 21st in net rating at negative 1.2 still strong 16th in offense 20th in defense 538 projects them to win 37 which would be 13th in the loaded western conference and gives them an eight percent chance of making the playoffs again all those are before tonight's loss in los angeles to the lakers so a number of questions about us fucking up our projection on the kings which we we will both uh, happily own or at least i can speak for myself and say that uh, no Herb, herbs and yeah. yeah go ahead sorry yeah i mean so sure Absolutely. They have dramatically outperformed expectations. I'm thrilled about it. And a lot of that is De'Aaron Fox. Do people expect anybody to get all 30 projections right or that teams aren't going to outperform it? I mean, it's always going to happen. And it's funny how like each individual fan base is to cocoon with this sort of thing. It's like, oh, you got us wrong this year. Let's do all that stuff. And it's like with the Kings, one of the things that's most striking about them outperforming their their 
over under so dramatically this year is that they've done it with largely similar personnel and names. Now they have changed how they've used some of those guys. Obviously, Nemanja Bielitsa has opened up their offense a lot, and, De- and but then a lot of the guys, primarily De'Aaron Fox, are just playing way better this year. And so, I mean, when you looked at what they were last year, which was truly dreadful, and it was a largely similar group, and while De'Aaron Fox was encouraging to us in Summer League, and there were all those kind of signs, you're sitting there going, well, like, okay, you have, even though you don't have the gravity of them having their own draft pick and having that weigh them down, the West is really strong. A lot of those fundamental indicators were there, but they've just been way better. And that's fantastic. It's a great story for the league. It's really good for the franchise. And it was, I think, even King's optimist would say that they didn't see this coming. So I think there were three main things that we missed on. One was just Fox taking this much of a step forward. I mean, he was one of statistically the worst players in the NBA last year. And now he's been a very quality starting point guard. Concompetent with that is the transition attack which you know has not been Dave Yeager's MO and in their half court offense if you look at it has been really really bad this year it's been about where you would have expected but the crazy running that they've done has been able to prop up their offense Fox has been a big part of that the coaching has been a big part of that then you throw in the fact that we thought they were going to play two bigs together all the time and that's how it looked in preseason as well with Yeager even going with the four big lineup in the preseason and you know it it seemed like but he whether he won the battle with management to start Bielitsa over Bagley or maybe he'll eventually lose that battle but he started off with much saner rotations than I was expecting them to do so that one I think I can get a little bit of a pass on because they weren't necessarily talking I don't think about Bielitsa starting at the four another thing too is Bogdan Bogdanovich has been really really good I think he's taken another big step forward this year as well as has Buddy Heald you know a lot of these guys have overperformed but I think the running has been huge getting some more space with the stretch four they're shooting it really really well from three they may have be having some unsustainable shooting performances particularly Bielitsa and Fox now because they've got more spacing they're getting a lot more at Kali Stein offensively as well so a lot of things have come together to make them better also worth noting however that they've been I think the second luckiest team in basketball so far and well, yeah, that, yeah that gets into a question yeah. actually let's answer that in a different question which sure. is from Sean Dooley the Kings are 23rd in NBA.com's net rating but are three games above 500 what accounts for this and so there are a couple of big things the most important one is that they've been ridiculous in clutch circumstances so they're they're 14 and six in games that are within five points in the final five minutes they have a plus 22 net rating which is third in the nba they have the league's best clutch defensive rating 90 90 defensive rating which is ridiculous and even though they only have a true shooting percentage themselves at of 53 percent, so that's actually below below the league average for a full game i don't know if it's below for clutch i don't have that kind of information they've they've been really successful in those games now do i think their defense is that great and that's going to necessarily continue no probably not though they have i think defended better in the clutch than i've anticipated when you watch them and i've watched a fair amount of their close games but really that's what it is is that they're 14 and 6 in those circumstances when you could expect eight and eight or depending on how you see their end game rotation compared to other teams maybe even below 500 just because there are a lot of teams that have more star power let's say a theory that was posited to me that i think is a reasonable one is they always keep coming 
and they always keep running really hard and yep. that that at the end of games particularly both because the teams are tired and just because the natural inclination is to kind of tighten up at the end of a game and all right we got to make sure of everything we got to go slow having the ball run down your throat at the end of a game is something that teams are not really prepared for and also this is something that, that i think is interesting i read this a couple of weeks ago that their performance on the second games of back-to-backs is really bad relative to where what you would expect based on the rest of their performance and again maybe because they emphasize running so much when they're on the second game of back-to-back they're just not able to get that going as much that would be something to maybe explore a little bit more as well but i think the running in the half court uh, or i'm sorry running in clutch situations again this is a theory that would probably require more research to really say you know what kind of transition play are they getting in the last five minutes of games which i don't necessarily have the ability to look at right now other than just watching all those games which i probably don't have time to do unfortunately uh maybe king's observers if you've noticed that uh, please uh let us know on twitter but th- that would be a i think a potential explanation for that another potential explanation for that is random variant another quick question we can do from ryan hutchings what should the kings do with their remaining cap space i think the number off the top of my head is 11 12 million i think you try to use that more i mean they could go after anything they could go after the best asset you can get and I would, I mean, they have so much money for the summer of 2019. They have more than they really know what to do with. So I would try to extract an asset now if you can try to get, you know, a year and a half of salary if possible. But if teams are being stingy, then just take on some immediate money. And remember, they have guys that they can throw in at various salary levels like Costa Kufos or Zach Randolph. If they want to take on a bigger salary than that available cap space, they absolutely can do it. So best asset you can pull relative to what you're sacrificing. Vlad Adiva. Uh, had some comments to Sam Amick he was asked about you know are you going to kind of short circuit this rebuild and try to give up some future assets to make it in the playoffs this year and Vlade said no we're not going to do that now whether how much control Vlade actually has is another question but those are encouraging statements at least um quick one what should the kings do with willie collie stein i think they should squeeze him pretty hard i wouldn't really want to go much more than 10 million a year even that might be a bit much uh just given the depth at the center position he's been a quality contributor but then you've also got marvin bagley who i think it, it to me at least is their center of the future um or the guy they're they want to be their center of the future and so just putting a lot of resources into collie stein doesn't make a ton of sense to me i mean i think he's a guy who's you know gonna be a mid-tier starting center but it doesn't have the skill level or the rebounding uh or the defensive focus even though he has the tools to be much better than that so you don't want to pay like real good 15 million a year starter money for him going forward but if you can get him on kind of more of a stopgap starter type of price you do that or you play the restricted free agent qualifying offer game if you have to and if he gets some enormous offer from another team i don't believe he will uh you know you can let him walk i mean they are still despite this step forward are pretty far out of condition now they drafted him they've had some success you do see a lot of times teams that start to have a little bit of success double down on bringing that guy back uh even when you know that how much of that success he contributed to or how much he can continue to drive in the future is in question so uh, i would play pretty hardball with him he's not the type of guy who's like so core where it's like oh we can't afford to alienate this dude no argument from me whatsoever there ready to move on to the spurs or is there another question oh man i I mean the spurs have been such a mystery Uh, i feel like i (laughs) i I need to do even more work on them frankly 
Um, but why don't we start here uh, with them? What are their yeah. fundamentals? Yeah, fundamentals. 20 and 17, 7 and 3 since last time we did this. Plus 1.4 net rating puts them 12th in the NBA. They are 4th in offense, 21st in defense. 538 projects them to win 40 games, which would be 12th, which is so ridiculous. And gives them only 25% chance of making the playoffs. I want to run through some ridiculous stats here. Since December 1st, the San Antonio Spurs are 2nd in net rating at a plus 10.1. That is basically like a 64 win team. They're actually underperforming their point differential because they're only 10 and 5. They are first in offense with a 118 offensive rating, 12th in defense at about, you know, 110 or sorry, 108-ish, sorry about that. And they are first in the league in effective field goal percentage in that time. And I'll let you talk and then I'll give the other ridiculous stat. Yeah, and the way they're doing it, I mean, we've talked about how their shot mix offensively is so anti-modern. But they hit really well from all areas. Check this shit out. They are number one since December 1st in every area shooting the ball that cleaning the glass tracks. 72% at the rim. That's number one. Floater range, 47%. Long mid-range, twos outside the paint, 48%. 49% on corner threes. 41% on above the break threes. 42% overall on threes. And it really doesn't matter what your shot mix is. And it's very low. They're shooting still... 30th in shots at the rim, 30th in percentage of shots from three, 50% of their shots as twos outside the restricted area. If you're number one for every zone, you're still going to be pretty darn good. Yeah, you may not be taking that many threes, but if you hit 42% of them and you hit 72% of your shots at the rim, you're going to be an awesome offense. Now, we can certainly quibble as to how sustainable that's going to be going forward, but it seems like their emphasis on getting what they consider to be a good shot, regardless of where it is on the floor, has been paying off over this last month. And as we would expect, San Antonio has also been ridiculously good at not turning the ball over. Just 12% of their possessions in the month of December, which is incredibly low and, of course, best in the league. And yeah, I mean, so they're, they've taken the fewest proportion of their shots at the rim and second fewest from three. But if you're making everything, that's totally fine. And they've been ridiculous and their defense has been better overall. Though I'm sure that's also helped by not having to defend as much in transition because the other team is getting the ball out of the basket every damn time. And something else that I think is is notable for San Antonio during this same time period, second fewest opponent shots at the rim. You know, so they, yeah. they've had some good shot defense as well, but teams aren't getting, you know, they aren't getting there and San Antonio, as they often have been, you know, they've been, they're capable at rebounding. They're their turnover numbers in terms of forcing them are better than I expected without DeJounte Murray on the floor. I think that might regress a little bit too. So yeah, they're, they're basically at the, the apex version of, of this and it's remarkable. I mean, they, and this isn't just like them beating up on bad teams or something like that. Like they've, they've put a charge into some teams and we can appreciate it for what it is. And I mean, it's great that they're over 500 again, that they're, they're going to, that they've kept it going for as long as they have. And who knows, maybe they can keep it going for longer, but the, the law of gravity, you know, I, I, it's funny. I picked the Spurs over on the idea of pop magic and all that kind of stuff. And I had conceded defeat and I still kind of am thinking I will lose on it, but who who the hell knows at this point? I mean, it's 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 amazing and it's ridiculous. And I've really enjoyed watching them over the last couple of weeks just because I can't imagine how infuriating it would be to play against this team. What's really been pushing their great play as well has been awesome minutes from the bench. Jakob Pertl has an 18 net rating. Derek White, Patty Mills, uh, Davis Bertans, Bellinelli. Like the, those bench-heavy groups 
all those guys have double digit net ratings and because it's the Spurs they've played pretty significant minutes here as well interestingly enough DeMar DeRozan and LaMarcus Aldridge have two of the lowest net rating on the team which is not going to help their RPM stats uh, very much but obviously they've been very important really it's been the defense with that bench unit that's been pretty good and with DeRozan and Aldridge on the floor the defense hasn't been good 108 with them on the floor but you know getting into the 102 range and then with Pirtle on the floor 98 defensive rating some of that's going to change a little bit you know I don't expect that dichotomy to persist all year but the Spurs for a long time have been a team that just with superior execution and depth has hurt other teams second units and it's good to see that that's something that has come back especially because we apparently wrongly said hey this team just doesn't have enough good players early in the season when they're really struggling and they've completely turned that around um take a couple more questions here uh i think we addressed mark tremaine's talking about whether these last 10 games is a turnaround or random variance like it's some of both certainly i mean when you're shooting number one in the nba from every area especially like that shooting at the rim 72 percent and you're not going to shoot that well over a full season you're not going to shoot 42 percent from three over a full season and we've seen teams every once in a while shoot you know 48 percent from mid-range but that's basically been like these last couple of years warriors and while DeRozan and Aldridge and Gay are solid mid-range players they're not that good I don't think so yeah I do think that's going to regress to some degree here um could the Spurs find a way to extract whatever value is left in mellow with their culture and mid-range heavy system I don't believe so and they've already got a guy who's a better version of him at this point in time in Rudy Gay yeah I I think that's a a fair way of interpreting it um you kind of hit on this already but given the team's recent performance what should the expectations be for this team the rest of the season well so i think it's interesting that 538 projections have them winning 40 games so that would mean that they finish a, that there are a few games under 500 for the rest of the season i think that's a reasonable possibility they also need their, their best players remaining to stay healthy obviously it'd be great if they had dejounte murray back they're not getting dejounte murray back and uh, I, I i have more trouble reading this team than any team in the nba but i would say yeah a little bit under 500 they're offense is going to come back to earth a little bit their defense you know they're 12th in the league right now let's say that regresses to their 20th overall or 21st overall for the season so yeah uh, i'm gonna say a little bit under 500 the rest of the way and that could keep them in the playoff mix they, they could be around there but I, I my instinct is that they're going to end up just out yeah, and they do. DeRozan never gets hurt, and Aldridge never gets hurt, but they do have some older guys they're relying on it as well. That could be an issue for them. They outside of Murray, they've actually been quite healthy so far this year, and I guess Gasol is the other one too. But you know, I think Pirtle to some degree has outplayed Gasol. Um, I'm not sure how much I would want to go back to Gasol at this point in time, especially since Pirtle can be part of the future for this team. Uh, let's go to the Jazz now. What do we got for them? The Utah Jazz are 18 and 19, 5 and 5 since the last 15 and 60. They are still ninth in net rating, plus 3, 21st in offense, strong third in defense. 538 projects them to win 48 wins, which would put them fifth in the Western Conference. That would be, yeah, pretty clear. Actually, they're separate by three games on each side, three behind the Rockets and then three ahead of the Blazers, which is somewhat interesting for the projections and a 90% chance of making the playoffs. So question from Jaden Epperson, how heavily do you factor in the Jazz's schedule into the rough start? It's certainly a big factor. I mean, this is something David Locke has talked about and tweeted about a fair amount, and they've played a lot of good teams and in some ways more 
importantly, they haven't played the really awful teams that much. And those are teams that the Jazz should absolutely run with their defense. And then, you know, their offense, I think, can be better than it has been so far. So, yeah, it is absolutely a factor for me. And the fact that they're ninth in net rating despite playing a pretty hard schedule, to me, bodes that 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 it's a, a pretty significant argument in their favor. Maybe not that they're going like, to get all the way up to the two seed or something like that, but that they will make the playoffs. Yeah, and the Jazz, I mean, I know they've had some pretty ugly blowout losses, but they've also had some massive blowout wins. They're actually third in net rating per cleaning the glass over the last month since December 1st, 9.0 net rating. And they just in this month have won 3.8 games fewer than expected based on their point differential. So you might say there's something about this team where they're really inconsistent and they blow teams out or they get blown out. But I, I generally feel better trusting the math unless the Charlotte Hornets are involved on this. So I, I do think they're going to be be able to take a, a significant step forward here as they get into an easier portion of the schedule. Uh, will the Jazz make the playoffs? Yes, I believe they will. Can the Jazz get the three seed? Asks uh, Brandon Jensen. Uh, is that Jensen of Siegfried and Jensen, the uh, Utah personal injury film that advertised a lot on, on the Utah telecast? I'm guessing it's probably not. But uh, yeah, I think they can. I mean, they're still projected for fourth right now by 538. The, the Rockets are projected for third, but it, you know it really seems like that's anyone. So it's not out of the realm of possibility at all that they could get the three seed. They still got to start playing better, but they have a, an easier schedule going forward. And you know it seems like this is a team that under Snyder many a year has gotten better as the year has gone on. But one concern with that, Tom Ferris asked about, if Donovan Mitchell continues to shoot this poorly from the field all season, what's the Jazz ceiling and what should they do? Well, I think they, they would need to kind of more in the long term start thinking about different options at the other guard position you definitely need somebody that can shoot but then how much do you want to value shot creation is an important question you know how how much do you want donovan playing on ball how much do you want him up ball and i would be looking more for a shooter there and that also does not bode well for dante exum being that answer granted i also didn't think he was that answer beforehand but that would be a part of it and i mean then utah's offense in their current construction has a significantly lower ceiling then you're looking more like a league average type of thing if things are going well rather than a top 10 and so that dramatically affects their chances of being a championship contender because one of the things you and i have talked about is that there is a certain threshold that you have to reach as a you know a truly elite team that you can score reliably because if you can't reach that point then you're going to lose more often than not once the talent level gets a lot higher and these teams not only have better talent than the the average team but also play them a higher proportion of minutes and get to adjust and all that kind of stuff so that would be a, a real constraint fortunately Utah has a lot of financial flexibility moving forward so they they have the ability to go in different directions the problem is most of the players who are good enough to play with Mitchell if you need somebody more ball dominant are a really expensive and be hard to get yeah now you might say that with the point guard market there are some options this year to try to get more of a traditional scoring pick and roll point guard rather than rubio who's going to be a free agent this year and that that might be a way to take a temporary step forward and with gobert with mitchell hopefully still an effective player but you know maybe not 31 percent usage you know that that's that's pretty high you know i think if you're been as inefficient as he has scaling that back can be helpful but they don't necessarily have other guys in the perimeter who can do that so maybe getting one guy who's got a little bit more of a scoring bent or maybe even you know a rudy gay type of guy who, who can come in just as a pure scorer and be a, 
more effective for them, take some of the load off of him. But you're right. I mean, that does limit their ceiling, right? That, that's what Tom's question is looking at here. I mean, you're thinking of Mitchell and Gobert as this amazing core, then you can fill in a, around those guys with role players. But, you know, if Mitchell can't hold up to that, then you do have to completely reevaluate the path of the franchise. And so my hope is that he won't continue to shoot this poorly all season. I mean, the, the two biggest reasons his efficiency is down, he's actually finishing better at the rim this year, but his floaters have declined from 38% to 32%. And he's also taking 7% more of his shots as floaters this year. And basically he's taking all of those floaters as shots that used to be shots at the rim. And he's even taking fewer three pointers this year uh, as well. And and that's the other thing that's really gone down 29% from three this year, 34% a year ago. And he's taking some more difficult attempts off the dribble. He can look really good at times when he gets going. So, and I think his distribution has taken a little bit of a step back also. Uh, Lower assist rate. Some of that is based on the fact that for long periods of time, the Jets haven't been able to hit a three this year. And he also suffered with some lower body injuries. So, you know, if you want to find them, there are reasons for him to struggle. But the longer this goes on, the more difficult it becomes to put stock in those external reasons. And the more you have to say, well, maybe he's just not that good. Quick question. Somebody, Chad Hill asked, uh, would you trade Ricky Rubio for Evan Fournier? My answer is a pretty emphatic no. The reason why is because Fournier is significantly more expensive and isn't good enough to justify that loss of flexibility. And Utah doesn't really have commensurate salary to send back to neutralize that part of the trade. So no, I wouldn't do that. Can Mitchell learn better feel and passing instincts, or is that more of an intuitive attribute? I mean, I think we've seen it from him. Uh, he's thrown some unbelievable passes. That, and, you know, still, I, I'm just not sure whether it's he's got the signature shoe now. He feels like he's he had this great playoffs. He's got to shoot more. That's something that was uh, posited by an executive to me is that he kind of feels pressure and he's been hijacking things a little bit more. And, and certainly when you've got 50% true shooting and 31% usage, yeah, you know, you you need to shoot a, a little bit less. So yeah, I, I think it's more of a mental thing because we have seen him show the ability to throw some great passes. Now, as we've seen at times with D'Angelo Russell, although he's gotten much better as a passer statistically in Brooklyn, you know, th- the ability to throw great passes doesn't mean that you see that pass all the time necessarily. But I do think he can get back to where he was last year and build on that. And also just his assists will look better if they hit a few more three-pointers because that's a, in large part uh, what he sets up um all right i think we're done here uh, anything you want to talk about before we go other than uh, our patreon at patreon.com slash uncle in the rue and the nba cast which will return on january 9th for bucks at rockets at 5 p.m eastern Ooh. wednesday january 9th that'll be an awesome game um yeah really interested really excited to see about... how the bucks are going to guard james harden by the way that'll be fascinating yeah have a couple of things coming out the clippers piece that i mentioned will be out at the athletic at some point this week also probably going to have the top 10 prospects right up i'm still kind of getting getting the stats all together on that on the road right now and then real gym radio with ethan sherwood strauss we went in depth on the warriors situation present future everything else like that and Strauss versus the house everything else and then wrote about patrick McCaw, wrote about cap space teams late last week for the athletic as well all right we'll be back january 2nd is our next broadcast we're doing three this week uh, as the holidays wrap up talk to you all then at bet 365 we don't do ordinary we believe that every sport should be epic every basket every game every point every play from the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line whatever the sport whatever the moment it's never ordinary at bet 365 
21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply.